0: So we come, nearly, to the end of the world, or at least, the end of our knowledge, easternmost and southernmost of the great cities of the known world. The ancient port of Ashai stands at the end of a long wedge of land, on the point where the Jade Sea meets the Saffron Straits. Its origins are lost in the mists of time. Even the Asha'i do not claim to know who built their city. They will say only that a city has stood here since the world began, and will stand here until it ends. Few places in the known world are as remote as Ashai, and fewer are as forbidding.
1: And so we bring you the story of Ashai by the Shadow. It's a story of the Far East that contains elements both familiar and unfamiliar, with direct ties to Azor Ahai, R'hllor, and characters who have been there such as Melisandra, Quaithe, Miri Mazdur, and Archmaester Marwyn. And then there's blood magic, fire magic, shadow binding, and prophecy. Add in ties to Valyria, Daenerys Targaryen, the Great Empire of the Dawn, and perhaps the Long Night itself. What you've got here is an episode you'll want to pay extra close attention to. We're going deep into the shadow to see what it can teach us about our favorite storyline, and you will not be disappointed. Just remember to bring a light. Hello and welcome.
2: You all know me, I'm Aziz, and I'm joined by... LML, a.k.a. Lucifer Means Lightbringer from the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Happy to be here. Right on. We worked on the Dane podcast together, and it kind of
1: grew as these things do. We dig, and we find more than we expected to find. And, well, we're not going to shy away from that. We're going to make it into an episode. And in this case, well, it led to this. And, in fact, we're going to be doing one more after this. One turned into three... And that's just how it goes so we're excited for you all to see it now also want to mention our new intro if you're watching on youtube and even if you're not you should go check it out on youtube it's only about 45 seconds we got a great new animated intro thanks to michael klarfeld of Claradox.de. also the maker of this wonderful map behind me here And we're trying to get his name out there because, wow, look look at how good that was, right? That was just, it's amazing. Also, thanks to Joey Townsend for the theme music, which we've had for quite a while, but some of you on YouTube might not be used to the theme music because we've only recently added it to our videos, but it's been part of our audio podcast for a long time. And of course, thanks to First Sword Joshua Hayes Cutter, also called Joshua the Raw, our First Sword on Patreon. So... I want to get started because this topic is awesome, and David, you know, we should drop a quick message here, a little note to, to mention just how much we went back and forth on this topic. We really, it's really a lot like the forging of steel, wasn't it? Like hammer, hold, fold, and heat, and repeat, right?
2: <laughs> oh, you're a, t- you're a terrible smith. It's heat, it's, it's heat, hammer, and fold. Get it right. Ah,
1: see? No wonder. This is what I need you for. I don't know anything about forging blades. <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, there's, if there's one thing I know about, it's Lightbringer.
1: <laughs> 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 well, what, this is another one of the stories within the story situations. It's something that I almost, I'm almost i surprised we didn't touch on this subject sooner because there's just so much to it. But hey, that's how it goes. We didn't know how much there was to go on until we really started to get deep into it. And that's just one of my favorite things to do is to research and prepare and the type of topics that really aren't out there as much as... So much of A Song of Ice and Fire has been analyzed. It never ceases to surprise me how much more there is to talk about, even this far out from (laughs) another book, right?
2: Well, and I think I speak for all the History of Westeros uh, fans, which I've been one for a long time, when I say that uh, that's kind of what you guys do best. You take obscure things and uh, assemble the information and come out with a surprisingly coherent picture assembled from all the various details. And that's exactly what we've done here with The Shy. so... I'm definitely pleased to uh, be a part of it. It's lots of fun. Had fun last time. We're going to really, really blow the roof off the building with this one. So (laughs) here we go. Now, the narrative has never focused on a shy, as you know. We've never seen it through a POV. We've never had a POV of a character who's been there to describe it. Um, So the world of Ice and Fire, however, rectifies this uh, problem a little bit and gives us a lot of new information, fills in some important gaps, which allows us to draw some really fun conclusions. But much of it is hard to see because George likes to feed us in little drips and drabs. So we've put it all together, and we think it will reveal quite a lot. And you guys will be pleasantly surprised. Uh, real quick,
1: before we get started, um, check out my cool Radio Westro shirt. It's the only shirt I know of that has the word Ashi on it. It says the only radio station this side of Ashi, And I don't know of any radio stations on either side of Ashai. So, grats to Radio Westro there. Little, uh, That's a fine-looking T-shirt. Yeah, they they have these available at their website. Um, I'm sure you guys are aware of Radio Westeros by now, but if not, well, hey, what are you waiting for? So the first thing we learn about Ashai, the first connection George R. R. Martin draws to it in the early pages of A Game of Thrones is dragons, one of our favorites. So let's go there. Part one: Where do dragons come from?
2: The dawn of dragons. In such fragments of Bath's unnatural history as remain, the Septon appears to have considered various legends examining the origins of dragons and how they came to be controlled by the Valyrians. The Valyrians themselves claimed that dragons sprang forth as the children of the Fourteen Flames, while in Carth, the tales state that there was once a second moon in the sky. One day this moon was scalded by the sun and cracked like an egg, and a million dragons poured forth." In Ashai, the tales are many and confused, but certain texts, all impossibly ancient, claim that dragons first came from the shadow, a place where all our learning fails us. These Ashai histories say that a people so ancient they had no name first tamed dragons in the shadow and brought them to Valyria, teaching the Valyrians their arts before departing from the annals. Yet if men in the shadow had tamed dragons first, why did they not conquer as the Valyrians did? Though Maester Yandel
1: goes on to say he sides with the Valyrian story. He's not confident, and I'm inclined to believe the Asha'i version. What's more, they can both be true to an extent. We don't have to believe just one or the other. They can both contain grains of truth. Dragons didn't all have to come from one place, after all. Unless the theme got it right, and they really did come out from the center of a broken moon. <laughs> That's probably a metaphor, though, huh?
2: Uh, yeah, that's, that's my take on it. I mean, when a moon cracks or explodes, the dragons that pour forth are going to be the meteor kind. And people have been describing meteors and comets as dragons and fiery snakes for thousands of years, blah, 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 blah. So that's not even really that big of a mystery. The question is, is it only a metaphor? Or could this event also have had something to do with the magical origin of dragons? I mean, it's a fantasy novel, so there's really no reason why it couldn't be both. But I don't think so in this case, because... I think this moon explosion was the cause of the long night, and we have a lot of evidence that dragons existed prior to the long night. And that's what we're here to discuss, or at least one of the things, the existence of dragons prior to Valyria and prior to the long night.
1: Right, meteors, fake dragons or not, the real flapping and flying, toothing and clawing dragons, uh, as far as they go, our confidence that... Ashai is at least a place of origin, if not the place of origin. It comes from several different sources. But first, we're going to prove, as best as we can, that dragons were around before Valyria, to leave no doubt.
2: Yes, let's uh, start with something easy. (laughs) To start with, uh, we have several Westerosi fables which involve dragon slayers from the Age of Heroes. There's good old Sirwin of the Mirror Shield, who slew the dragon Urax by approaching from behind his mirror shield and spearing him through the eye, with a very well-placed spear throw. Brienne talks of Sir Galadin of Morn, who slew a dragon with his magic sword, called the Just Maid. And then we have Nimble Dick Crab, whose legendary hero Crackbones says uh, that he slew a dragon by tying him in a knot so that when he breathed fire, he only roasted his own ass.
1: <laughs> Mr. Yandel also serves up some juicy nuggets in the Hightower section of the World of Ice and Fire telling us that there are local legends which tell of dragons roosting on Battle Isle until the first Hightower put an end to them and we'll talk more about Battle Isle later but Yandel also mentions an ancient warrior of legend from the Reach named Davos Dragonslayer Now we don't know anything about, about him really other than that he's from the Reach and he's from the Age of Heroes and then his last name is Dragonslayer but hey his last name
2: is Dragonslayer. That means something, right? I would think so. It doesn't come from nowhere. Now, we don't know how much of these legends are literal or fantastical, but any way you slice it, there are dragons present in many ancient legends from Westeros. The important thing to realize is that these dragon legends probably do not have anything to do with Valyria. The Age of Heroes supposedly predates the Long Night, and Valyria arose after the Long Night.
1: Furthermore, it's made very clear in the World of Ice and Fire that Valyria never came to mainland Westeros until Aegon the Conqueror set foot on the shores of modern-day King's Landing.
2: Now, the question is, where do the dragons in these stories come from? It seems odd that the First Men would have a bunch of stories about dragons if no dragons had ever come to Westeros. And if any of these myths do predate the Long Night as they are said to, then we might be dealing with some kind of fuzzy, stylized memory of an ancient dragon presence in Westeros.
1: Yeah, and in the same quote from Yandel about the origin of dragons that we used at the top, there's a reference to these legends and the fact that they seem to agree with the historical accounts. But there were
2: dragons in Westeros once, long before the Targaryens came, as our own legends and histories tell us. And we just saw a couple of those legends. Um, so it's interesting, uh, it's interesting to me that he would be so definitive with that statement, that there were in fact dragons in Westeros in the ancient past. I mean, it's said almost casually. I think it's safe to say this represents the consensus wisdom of the Citadel. Suddenly, those legends of dragon slayers look a little more credible. Indeed. And there's always at least a grain of
1: truth in those legends. So we have no reason to start off by assuming that they're just myths, because that's how it works. And that's the device that George plays with a lot, a real world device at that. And this majorly consensus is not just based on folklore either. It's historical accounts and hard evidence. It tells us that Maester Vanyans, against the unnatural, quote, contains certain proofs of dragons having existed in Westeros even in the earliest days, before Valyria rose to be a power. We know that the Maesters, Westeros' primitive version of archaeologists, dug up giant bones to confirm the existence of giants. And so it's likely that these proofs are, in fact, dragon bones.
2: Yeah, and this is even confirmed at the end of that quote from Yandel concerning the origin of dragons. If dragons did first spring from the Fourteen Flames, they must have been spread across much of the known world before they were tamed. And, in fact, there is evidence for this, as dragon bones have been found as far north as Ib, and even in the jungles of Sothoryos. So there you go. It's not even controversial. <laughs> dragons existed before Valyria did, and they spread across the globe, even to Westeros it would seem. But the question remains, where did they come from? The only candidate mentioned other than Valyria is Ashai by the Shadow, and it just so happens that Ashai is intimately linked with dragons from the very beginning of Book One. Yeah, Dragons
1: in the Shadow. The first five times Ashai is mentioned in a Game of Thrones, four of those times involve dragons, so that's why we are so set on it having a direct association, something that George wanted us to think. The first time Ashai appears at all, well we're immediately made associate it as a place where dragons come from, in fact.
0: One egg was a deep green, with burnished bronze flecks that came and went, depending on how Danny turned it. Another was pale cream streaked with gold. The last was black, as black as a midnight sea, yet alive with scarlet ripples and swirls. What are they? she asked, her voice hushed and full of wonder.
1: Dragons' eggs from the shallow lands beyond Ashai. Said Magister Illyrio. The eons have turned them to stone, yet still they burn bright with beauty. Is he telling the truth? That they Is that really where they're from? Well, whether they are or not is anyone's guess. Personally, I think Varys stole them from the Targaryen stash, but that's beside the point in another story. Which is, the, the point is that Ashai is thought of as the right place to find authentic dragon's eggs.
2: Right, Illyrio is either telling the truth, when they really did originate in the shadow, or he told a lie that he knew would sound plausible. Either way, this is an obvious implication for the reader that Ashai is the place people expect dragon's eggs to come from.
1: Right, I mean, this is, again, this is the beginning of A Game of Thrones. So though the World of Ice and Fire raises the issue of where dragons first came from and allows that Ashai is one of the possibilities, this isn't actually a new idea. It's introduced quite early. In fact, Daenerys flat out says it.
0: She had heard that the first dragons had come from the east from the shadowlands beyond Ashai and the islands of the Jade Sea. Perhaps some were still living there, in realms strange and wild.
1: As we'll see, almost all the mentions of Ashai in A Game of Thrones are related to Daenerys. But first, we have a connection between Ashai and dragons from a less likely source someone who is just developing his extra worldly perceptions.
0: He lifted his eyes and saw clear across the narrow sea. To the free cities and the green Dothraki sea and beyond, to vase Dothrak under its mountain, to the fabled lands of the Jade Sea, to Ashai by the shadow, where dragons stirred beneath the sunrise.
1: Well, that's cool and all, Bran, but how about you take a look there now? <laughs> let's, let's see a vision of Ashai, from the Winds of Winter, back when you were just learning how to dream and all that. It's, it's, not, as, it's not as thorough.
2: Well, we can, uh, I've definitely got my fingers crossed for seeing all kinds of hellacious things in uh, Bran Weirwood Visions and the World of Ice and Fire, or uh, Winds of Winter, so we'll see. Indeed. Uh, Now, it's likely, I think, anyways, that the dragon scene in Bran's dream vision is an important part, because it's the last thing he sees right before it finally goes to the wall in the heart of winter, which is obviously the crux of the dream. Now, it almost seems like a shy by the shadow is presented as a kind of opposite to the heart of winter and the frozen deadlands. In the shy section of The World of Ice and Fire, it, which is only a page long, a uh, page and a half rather, the phrases heart of darkness and shadow's heart are used to describe the shadow beyond a shy. So, again, winter's heart, frozen deadlands versus shadow's heart and, I don't know, burn deadlands. <laughs> Something, yeah, it definitely sounds like a parallel. They're on opposite
1: sides of the world. Certainly it's presented that way, that they're kind of opposite ends of the world. Although there's more up to the map than we haven't seen. It's, it's how we, that's how it's been presented by George for quite a while. And as it turns out, the shadow is a place where flame is worshipped. So there's a lot more evidence there. Probably volcanoes nearby, almost certainly. So we've got the uh, parallel situation there, ice and fire. That's what it's all about.
2: Yeah, I think that might be one of the themes of the series. <laughs> Uh, So, The World of Ice and Fire offers corroborating evidence for the idea of dragons living wild and free in the shadow, beyond a shy, uh, saying that in the cliffs above the River Ash, deep in the heart of the shadow, demons and dragons make their lairs. In other words, Martin introduced the idea in book one, and he's followed up on it now in The World of Ice and Fire.
1: Now, of course, this majorly information about demons and dragons is presented by Yandel himself. And it's potentially unreliable, so we must consider that much of this may be exaggeration. However, we've seen enough information about dragons in Ashai to suspect that there is at least the seed of truth here, if not a lot more. Now, even though Bran's vision shows him dragons stirring in the Shadowlands, it seems unlikely that dragons currently live there. At least not dragons that any human can see or access or certainly not ride.
3: I am Quaithe of the Shadow. We come seeking dragons.
1: If there are dragons near her home in the shadow, why come seeking Danny's? And that's, and that's just the beginning. Quaithe warns her about others who will come seeking.
3: They shall come day and night to see the wonder that has been born again into the world. And when they see, they shall lust. For dragons are fire made flesh, and fire is power.
1: Born again into this world would seem to indicate that Quaithe thinks of Danny's dragons as being the only ones in the world. Quaithe speaks to Danny about how magic has returned because her dragons have, or that her dragons are the sign, something along those lines. Either way, the implication is that Quaith, who is apparently from the Shadow, thinks Danny's dragons are unique. Now, her knowledge of the world surely extends farther east than ours, and Danny's, so this is very important. The fact is, there don't appear to be dragons
2: there currently. I agree. And if we consider things from a narrative standpoint, I think the repeated associations between dragons and Ashai are probably meant to indicate that dragons existed there in the past, as opposed to the present. Plus, Danny is the main character for whom Ashai seems relevant, and she already has dragons. So, you know. I mean, what she really needs is information on dragons, or perhaps access to magic that helps her control them. And it sounds like one or both might be in Ashai. If Ashai has something to do with the origin of dragons, it makes sense for Danny to be able to gain knowledge of either dragons or sorcery or both from Ashai. In any case, I think it's definitely clear that Martin wants us to associate dragons with Ashai. Barth directly suggests that Valeria may have learned the art of controlling dragons from the ancient Ashai, and so far, we've found plenty of evidence that dragons have existed there in the past. Now, the question is are we just talking about wild dragons? Ho oh, hum, we've seen that before. Or dragons that were controlled by people. Yeah, that is a big difference because if if
1: the Asha'i were just aware of dragons and didn't know how to ride them, well, then that maybe Danny can't learn a whole lot. But if they were, you know, if they had tread ground that's already been, you know, that the, only until the Valyrians came along, no one else would tread. Well, there's a lot she can learn. I mean, Valyria has gone; she's not going to learn it from them. So if we can point to enough parallels between ancient Asha'i and the Valyrians? It'll go a long way towards corroborating Barth's idea that the Valyrians learned the art of controlling dragons from someone before them and that that somebody might be the Asha'i. Or at least some elder race that maybe even came before the Asha'i and they learned it from them. Who knows how far this goes back? But the point is that it was before
2: Valyria and anything we can learn about that would be really cool. Indeed it would. And besides dragon riding, The Valerians were, of course, renowned for their powerful sorcery, all of which was rooted in blood and fire, as Archmaester Marwyn tells us in A Feast for Crows. Now, since we have found signs of dragon presence in Ashai and the nearby Shadowlands, let's see if we can find anything about magic relating to blood and or fire at Ashai. I think I remember something about that. Part 2. A Hinge of the World The dark city by the shadow is a city steeped in sorcery. Warlocks, wizards, alchemists, moon singers, red priests, black alchemists, necromancers, aromancers, pyromancers, blood mages, torturers, inquisitors, poisoners, god's wives, night walkers, shape changers, worshippers of the black goat and the pale child in the line of night, all find welcome in a shy by the shadow, where nothing is forbidden. Here they are free to practice their spells without restraint or censure conduct their obscene rites, and fornicate with demons if that is their desire. All righty then.
1: That torrent of dark-sounding magic user types is, well, awesome. It's a heavier-hitting version of the info that comes along with Eye's mentions as the Game of Thrones moves along past the early chapters. We start to go beyond the dragon connection, learning other tantalizing pieces of information. There are several mentions of magic users, exotic caravans, and... Things. (laughs) Things.
0: <laughs> Some of the statues were so lovely they took her breath away. Others, so misshapen and terrible that Danny could scarcely bear to look at them. Those, Sir Joris said, had likely come from the Shadowlands beyond Ashai.
1: Indeed, is this foreshadowing or foreshadowlandsing? At least it is a warning, I would say. A warning that the magic of the Shadowlands is bad news.
2: Yes, obviously that list of dark magicians who come to a shy sounds ominous all by itself, but it begs the question: Why a shy? Sure, there are no rules there, no stigma against performing any kind of magical abomination one can conjure up in your uh, in your warped little brain there. <laughs> but there are plenty of remote places in the world. Why do all of these sorcerers come to a shy to study?
1: One of the implications regarding Ashai isn't just that it's a place where dark magics are tolerated and encouraged, that would be enough, potentially, but it's a place where such powers are stronger. Magic actually works better. Melisandre herself confirms this. She was stronger at the wall, stronger even than in Ashai. So she's saying Ashai is the second strongest place she's been, it seems. Says a lot about the wall, too, but that's another subject.
2: (laughs) Right. uh, Yeah, and on a basic level, what it means is that certain places can be a source of magical energy, and that Ashai is one of those places. This probably has something to do with Melisandre's notion of what she calls hinges of the world. And that's almost certainly why so many magicians go to Ashai to study, not because of their very, very old books and sinister reputation, or at least not just because of that. Magic actually works more potently in that area of the Shadowlands.
1: So... An episode about Ashai wouldn't be complete without talking about some various types of magic. So let's do that. There's too many to cover. We couldn't possibly cover all the types of magic and how they might or might not work in one episode. And that's not even the subject of this episode. So we can't cover them all in full detail here. But we will cover those that are related to Ashai in ways that are relevant to the storyline. Starting with... Blood mages. Blood magic is the darkest kind of sorcery. Some say it is the most powerful as well. Well, maybe Kybern is right. It's associated with some of the nastier things we've seen, such as the topic they were discussing in that quote, the Valonkar prophecy. But seeing the future isn't terribly special, as funny as that sounds. <laughs> many, perhaps all forms of magic in A Song of Ice and Fire seem to provide that in some form or another. Basically, there's just a lots of prophecies and foretellings in A Song of Ice and Fire. We see resurrection in many forms, too, and, but that's certainly more unusual. The first brand of raising the dead comes immediately, and it's associated with the others. It is incomplete, though. The raised dead are not as truly alive as they once were. In fact, they don't seem very alive at all. But the next time we see any form of resurrection magic, the person brought back is even less capable. They can't even walk around and fight people. And it has nothing to do with the others. In this case, we're talking about Coma call Drogo. The deed was done with black magic. blood magic, rather. you can call it black magic, too. sure. <laughs> and the trail leads back to Ashi. Now we don't know if Maggie the Frog is from Ashi or not, but Maggie is a bastardization of Magi, or Meiji. And the only other person called that who bears that title showed what she was capable of, and it was uglier than Maggie herself. Indeed, this other Meiji. "'turned an unborn baby into a corpse dragon, eh, "'and call into a vegetable.
0: "'No,' she pleaded. "'Save him and I will free you, I swear it. "'You must know a way. Some
3: magic?' Mary door sat back on her heels "'and studied Daenerys through eyes as black as night. "'There is a spell. "'Her voice was quiet, scarcely more than a whisper. "'But it is hard, lady, and dark.' Some would say that death is cleaner. I learned the way in a shy and paid dear for the lesson. My teacher was a blood mage from the Shadowlands.
2: Should have remembered those statues and passed on this option, Danny. The Dothraki tried to tell you, even your blood riders. Hashtag TeamAbomination. Khaleesi! He pleaded, you must not do this thing. Let me kill this mage." Now there's obviously a deep mistrust here. And the reason for it becomes obvious in fairly short order. Miriam as blood magic ends the way so many Targaryen dragon hatching attempts ended in farce and tragedy, quote unquote, as Dany ends up losing Drogo and the unborn baby Rhaego. Tragic.
1: And then that infamous line that summarizes so much, it's thematic and prophetic repeated
3: often, and it's telling and dark. This is blood magic, lady. Only death may pay for life.
1: Though what she got wasn't what she wanted for her human family, Daenerys arguably got her dragons with what resembles a blood magic ritual, becoming the mother of dragons... yeah. She wasn't sure what she was doing, she was kind of compelled in a way, and Mary tells her this, she says, You don't know what you're doing! Blood magic isn't so simple, but Mary does at least recognize it as an attempt at blood magic, sort of. So it's, it's at least similar by appearances, at best. But George R. R. Martin himself clarifies it, and he says that it was basically a miracle what Danny did there. And remember, miracles aren't done by just anyone. But if we're being results-oriented, miracle, miracle or not, to her, the bottom line is clear. Dragons. Dragons came out of this. The result was dragons. It's very straightforward. How is very hard to tell, but the result is simple. <laughs> the symbol of her house is restored. The power of her ancestors recalled.
2: Not just House Targaryen, but the freehold of Valyria. That's right. Uh, Danny's miraculous waking of dragons from stone eggs seems a hundred percent consistent with Valyrian magic, rooted in blood and fire. Danny's blood magic is performed with a ton of fire, of course, and plenty of blood for that matter. Overhead burns the red comet, my friend, and Danny calls it the dragon's tail, while the Dothraki named it Shiarakia, the burning star. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that the red comet is associated with fire and blood, and appears overhead when Danny performs her fiery blood magic, Miracle. Quote unquote. This miracle also seems to check all the boxes for the Azor high- Reborn prophecy, as many have noticed. And if you think about it, the original Azor High forged Lightbringer, the Flaming Sword, with blood magic.
1: Yeah, that's huge. But at the time, this is where it's important to remember the timeline of events. The information we have now is what you're saying. But at the time, Meaning when we read about Danny's dragons being born, we hadn't even heard the name Azor Ahai before. The book does not mention that name. It doesn't mention the Prince of the Promised either. That stuff comes in a clash of kings. So the significance of Daenerys' miracle actually grows over time the more we read. It's typical George R. M. He gives us the answer before the question. We didn't even know there was this prophecy. We didn't even know there was a hero waiting to be reborn. But later we find out about it and then we go, hey, wait, didn't that already happen? Doesn't Daenerys check, like you said, check all the boxes of that prophecy pretty much? Now, he uses a spin on a device earlier with Miri Maz Dur. She sneaks in a name that isn't given additional context for three more books. It's like a microcosm of the same giving the, the answer before the question. In this case, it's about a character though. So Archmaester Marwyn's name appears in A Song of Ice and Fire before Azor Ahai. Impress your friends with that one. Make a bet with them, and you'll win. (laughs) So let's move on to an Archmaester in Ashai.
3: A maester from the Sunset Lands opened a body for me and showed me all of the secrets that hide beneath the skin.
1: Sir Jorah Mormont spoke up. A maester?
3: Marwyn, he named himself.
1: This is a good time to remind people that advanced scientific knowledge, especially the practical sort like anatomy and healing, most people in Westeros or in planetos all around are going to see it as magic. They think of it as magic, like it's just healing magic or something, or at least a cousin of magic. Now to us, the reader, it's very distinct. We know the difference clearly. Well, we usually know the difference. Sometimes there's, the line is blurred, but we're at least aware of the possibility that it's mundane and not supernatural. But we have to see through things through the eyes of the characters, not just the, not just ourselves as readers. We have to remember what they're seeing.
2: Yeah. That's, that's a really great point to I don't, uh, <laughs> to raise Aziz. I don't really have anything to I'm add. I'm dead? <laughs> <laughs> raise Aziz. Uh, yeah, no, uh, no dabbling in necromancy. I just wanted to say that's a good point. Um, you know, there's an Asimov quote, I think, about, you know, any science that's suitably mysterious or advanced appears as magic. It's indistinguishable from magic, something like that. So yeah, unless, that's what we're talking about here. Unless
1: you're aware of that concept, I suppose. And even in that case, it still might seem like, mind-blowingly, like, wow, how is that possible? I mean, we all probably see... Once a week or so, something on someone posts on a YouTube video on Facebook that we go, how is that possible? And it's sometimes just like, you know, something really mundane, but awesome. Now, here's where we recall the flip side to healing, too. It's not just the healing is certainly uh, a science and, you know, talking about anatomy and there's magic potentially involved, but we're talking about the citadel. So there's probably not much magic involved in what the citadel teaches, perhaps none at all, except on the fringes. And Archmaster Marwyn, well, he is on the fringes, but we have to remember that healing has a flip side. The Citadel is expert in a few things on the darker side as well, and again, that doesn't mean magic. It's the Citadel after all, but chemistry can be powerful, just like the magic in Ashai seems to be on the darker side. So it is for the science. We'll call it dark chemistry. That's like a really <laughs> bad band name right there, like a emo emo goth band or something. <laughs>
0: Crescent no longer recalled the name the Asha'i gave the leaf, or the lysine poisoners, the crystal. In the Citadel, it was simply called the Strangler. Dissolved in wine, it would make the muscles of a man's throat clench tighter than any fist, shutting off his windpipe. They said a victim's face turned as purple as the little crystal seed from which his death was grown. But so too did a man choking on a morsel of food.
1: So even some of the darker secrets held at the Citadel originate in Ashai, <laughs> Crescent probably shouldn't have tried using a secret of Ashai on someone called Melisandra of Ashai.
3: <laughs>
1: probably not a secret to her there, guy. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, Crescent's death by the Strangler was only an appetizer for a more important victim, Joffrey, of course. So even Sansa had a touch of Ashai in her arc and on her head.
2: <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, Joffrey was poisoned by those black amethyst, uh, black amethyst gems hidden in Sansa's hairnet, and they were from Ashai. They drank the moonlight in one scene, uh, just like Ashai drinks the light, and they were a purple so dark it looked black, which is the same description as Darkstar's eyes. Now, I'm not, I don't know what that means. It's just interesting.
1: It might be a thematic resonance kind of thing, like the dark purple might symbolize. You know, evil stuff. And Dark Star certainly had bad news. So it fits. If that's if that was George's intent, it certainly fits. Uh, Mel being unaffected by the Strangler. How about that? It made her seem supernatural at the time. Like, you're introduced to this character, and she's like, Preston is like, afraid of her and thinks of her as, as magical and all. And she is. There's no doubt. We've seen her POV. We know these things. But this is the first thing we see about her. And much later, much later, we find out that she exaggerates and supplements her authentic powers with tricks. Chemistry tricks. I guess her favorite band is Dark Chemistry, hmm. <laughs> no. Uh, she uses powders as much as she used powers, basically. She says they can create lust, fear, and truth. They can dazzle and even kill. And where did she learn to use these powders she knows so well? Well, quite likely the same place she used to learn her powers so well. Through her point of view, we learn that she knows how to make these powders, but the ingredients originate in Essos, and it's likely enough Melisandre acquired these things in Ashai, and some are probably native to that area. She seems to be an expert, or at least a bit of an expert on these things. So we should consider that she may just be immune to the Strangler through a built up tolerance rather than just because magic. Now, it could be because magic for, for sure, but we shouldn't be so sure. I love that we have a good reason to believe in both natural and supernatural possibilities and how George weaves the two together so well. Indeed. It could be either, it could be both. We have no way of knowing, and it's a great mystery either way. As Melisandre herself does, but she's already at the wall, meaning she herself merges the supernatural and the natural so well. Her character is kind of emblematic of the two. But she's oblivious of Danny <laughs> Marwin, who also seems to have a similar understanding, without the obliviousness, is making his way to Daenerys now. So among all the things he can do for her, or teach her, what he learned in Asha could be among the most crucial.
2: Yeah, indeed. I mean, there's just so many things he could teach her about, from prophecy to the glass candles that she's already somewhat familiar with. Um, Alaris the Sphinx proves to us that Marwyns knows how to use the candles. He used it to uh, see Sam coming, and he already apparently knows most of what Sam was trying to tell him because he's been using the candle to spy on stuff. I mean, he probably learned how those are used in a shy or maybe from books of a shy and even if he didn't get a chance to test his knowledge until later um you know that's it's i mean this guy spent 7 years in a shy and he knows how to use candles it's probably not a coincidence uh you know after all uh, the candles have only recently started burning so you know that knowledge that he had it must have come from somewhere but, um, you know, actually, this is actually, if I could just squeeze this in here, one of my little pet theories is that Marwyn uh, brought a candle with him when he left to go join with Daenerys at the end of a feast for crows, and he may actually teach her how to use it. She is a Valerian, after all, so it's kind of her magical birthright, in a sense. Now, if this is the case, Danny would have a way to learn much and more, including she could see danger to herself, she could see what's happening in the north, even. Bran can see a lot through the trees— Mel and the Braloris see a lot through Living Flame, so maybe Danny will see a lot through Frozen Flame. And in fact, I've wondered if maybe that's how we'll see a shy. Danny will learn to use the candles and see some foggy vision of our favorite ex Metropolis by the Shadow.
1: Yeah, that's a kind of cool idea. It, 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 at the surface, it sounds almost far-fetched, but think relating it to Bran, well, that's why we did that. We related to Bran because now it doesn't seem far-fetched. You look at, at Bran, you think, well, all these things he's gonna he's poised to find out, to reveal to the reader through his weirwood visions or just being part of the weirwood network. So the notion of, of these sort of things is not far-fetched at all. It's just a matter of George finding a creative way to make it happen. You know, we obviously can't say that it definitely will happen. But it seems like a very strong possibility.
2: You know, I just figure if you're a Marwyn and you're headed out to help Danny fight some, you know, war for the dawn or something, you would bring all the weapons and resources you had. And the glass candle seems pretty useful. He points it out to Sam how useful it is, you know, right in that chapter. So I just figure he'll probably bring one.
1: Now, for any of this to happen, though, she'll actually have to trust Marwyn. That is not Ah. automatic. That's the one thing that Mm. could be a rub. And it could be that she remembers that name from Miri and has a negative association with it. She, you know, it doesn't have to be something that she thinks clearly about. Danny does have a temper. And bringing up Rago could really bring up that anger. So, but she might not hold it against him. It's not like Marwyn was the one that taught her the blood magic that killed Rago. That was somebody else.
2: Right. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think she will either. But, uh, I mean, if she does, when you say hold it against him, what you mean is she might feed him to her dragon, so let's just be clear <laughs> <Yeah>. about that. <laughs> but uh, if the subject does come up, Marwin might have something interesting to say about Miri, too. Who knows? That's true. Um, maybe all he has to do is throw her under the bus, and then he'll be in with Danny just fine. But uh, bottom line, if Marwin brings dragon knowledge, maesterly knowledge, Westerosi connections, and a glass candle, just maybe, maybe, I think she'll have to uh, consider taking him on. He's a pretty useful guy, and I know this is one of the things I'm definitely looking forward to the most in the Winds of Winter.
1: Yeah, and again, Marwyn was introduced really early in the story, associated with Ashai, associated with the things I think George had, some kind of plan that dates back to the early writings of the story, or his earliest days of his plans for the material. Yeah, that's a good point. But if there is a problem, it will be this connection to Mirian blood magic, I assume, uh, and the death of Rago. That, if there's a problem, that's the only one I could see. There could be other ones, but that's the most obvious from where I'm sitting. Speaking of... So, obviously, once we see the horrible effects of blood magic, the death of Rego, and all that, which was learned in Ashai, Here's... This is funny. Jorah, <laughs> right after learning this, starts suggesting, Hey, let's go to Ashai. Let's go to this place where <laughs> Miri Mazdur learned this awful magic that killed your son. Let's go there, yeah. <laughs> in fact, he says it four times. He's really insistent. An observant reader, in fact, is going to start to expect it. It's like, is this foreshadowing? Is this guy... Is this really going to happen? I mean, it's all said in the first parts of the first two books. So oh, maybe,
2: it, maybe he was. Uh, maybe he thinks that's the only place he can hide from Varys. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah,
1: that, that might work. Actually, <laughs> no one will find out that that he was feeding information this whole time. Exactly. To her. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> now they head in the general direction of of Ashai. That is, and Team Danny gets lost in the Red Waste. Uh, yeah, well done. But eventually the group makes it to Karth. What's funny though, even in Karth, they're still really, really far from Ashai. Still, despite the length, someone besides Jorah tells Danny that going to Ashai is crucial. He's not the only one. That someone is Quaithe, who loves to give advice through riddles and warnings and and, and the like.
2: Shadowbinders. Most sinister of all the sorcerers of Ashai are the shadowbinders, whose lacquered masks hide their faces from the eyes of gods and men. Indeed, the lacquered mask is something we
1: immediately associate with Quaith. That and prophecies delivered via glass candle. But the candles don't seem to be a shadowbinder only thing. Uh, They're a thing, but it looks like a few people know how to use them, especially given Marwyn's example. Now, Quaith introduces herself as Quaith of the Shadow, not Quaith of Ashai. ...in A Clash of Kings.
2: Yes, and the Shadowbinders seem to be the most badass of all the black sorcerers in Shy, as they alone are able to journey into this heart of darkness that is the capital S Shadow. Now, do we even want to know what lurks there? Of course we do. And we'll try to mm-hmm. figure it out, though we might regret it. But first, let's talk about our favorite lacquer mask-wearing Shadowbinder, Quaithe of the Shadow. She's a Shadowbinder with an agenda, and that agenda has something to do with dragons. Again, more Ashai
1: dragon shadow connection. The first time Quaith meets Danny, she warns her that people will attempt to take her dragons. The second time is the last encounter she has with her in person. From then on, Quaith starts appearing in her dreams. And Quaith gives this advice.
3: To go north, you must journey south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. And to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow.
0: A shy Danny thought, she would have me go to Ashai. Will the Ashai give me an army? She demanded. Will there be gold for me in Ashai? Will there be ships? What is there in Ashai that I will not
3: find in Karth? Truth, said the woman in the mask, and bowing, she faded back into the crowd.
1: What does Danny need to learn in Ashai? What is this truth? To go back, she's talking about the past. Maybe. It must be important, though. Quaithe repeats this line to to Danny in her dreams early in *A Storm of Swords, and then again later.
2: Yeah, indeed. Uh, That is the million-dollar question. What is this truth? I mean, it might be the whole reason for the entire build-up around Asshai throughout the novels. I think so.
1: And given the early and repeated theme of dragons in Asshai, the truth could have something to do with dragons, or could have to do with a lot of things, including dragons. The Valyrians clearly knew how to tame dragons, whether they invented the techniques on their own or not, but there's no Valyria for Danny to learn about dragons from, so she needs something else. So perhaps George R. R. Martin's original intention was to have her learn those things in Ashai, as in, he planned for her to go there, but changed his mind, and instead is having her learn things from there without actually going, by meeting people who've been there, etc.
2: Yeah, that sounds like a reasonable guess to me, Aziz. Um, Dragon knowledge seems to be the major thing that Danny's in need of And it seems to be a theme with all of Quave's advice for Danny, Particularly in A Dance with Dragons
0: She dreamed all her cares fell away from her And all her pains as well And she seemed to float upward into the sky She was flying once again, spinning, laughing, dancing As the stars wheeled around her and whispered secrets in her ear
3: To go north you must journey south To reach the west you must go east To go forward, you must go back. To touch the light, you must pass beneath a shadow. Quaithe, Danny called. Where are you, Quaithe? Then she saw. Her mask is made of starlight. Remember who you are, Daenerys, the stars whispered in a woman's voice. The dragons know. Do you?
2: So, that's the third time that we hear to go north, etc. from Quaithe. Uh, Quaithe seems to want Danny to embrace her dragon nature, and it seems logical that the truth Quaithe wants her to learn in Ashai might help her accomplish this goal, making Danny a better dragon lord in other words.
1: Yeah, her famous great grandfather egg, Aegon v, egg on the fifth, egg on the unlikely. May ha- also may have already gone down this route, a history repeating itself again, but recently, seeking arcane knowledge of dragons from
2: Ashai, the last years of Aegon's reign, were consumed by a search for ancient lore about the dragon-breeding of Valyria, and it was said that Aegon commissioned journeys to places as far away as shy by the shadow, with the hopes of finding texts and knowledge that had not been preserved in Westeros.
1: So either texts from Valeria with copies in Ashai, or texts from before Valeria or both. I'm sure Egg would have taken whatever he could get. You know, you you can't be too picky about which particular five to ten plus thousand year old texts are available for perusal.
2: Yes, uh, quite frankly, it's uh, a miracle that any paper survives that long. But we won't dwell on (laughs) mundane details like that. (laughs) Mundane details like uh, metachlorian counts and things like that. So we will offer nominees. uh, Oh, wait, no, that's your line. <laughs> the simple <laughs> fact is that Egg sought dragon knowledge in a shy, and that in itself is telling. Again, we see that it's basically not that big of a secret. Many people think of a shy as a place to find information about dragons. That is the point.
1: And we will offer other nominees for Quay's truth throughout this episode by discussing all the themes of the city by the shadow. We'll narrow down the possibilities, and thus Quay's cryptic message may also become a bit clearer. Of course, as we said, there are lots of possibilities. It doesn't have to be just one truth. Maybe that's why Quaith is vague about it, because it isn't just one thing. But as we delve deeper into Eshai, more possibilities will emerge. So a big question, then. With Quaith pushing the issue, and Jorah having already suggested going there several times, why doesn't it actually end up happening?
2: Yeah, it's, t- it's typical Jorah. The moment Danny brings up that someone else is suggesting to go to Eshai, Jorah changes his mind and suggests slaver's bay. It's only a good idea if Jorah suggests it, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: one of those funny, like, keep Danny to himself moments that I, that I don't think anyone noticed. But well, maybe some people did, but we've never talked about it on the show. I've never heard, had anyone point that out to me. Didn't, know that, didn't notice that till we did this research. Uh, another thing we are talking about. Just, you, never, you never cease to find new things, even basic things like this. Like We all know Jorah's like this, but <laughs> we missed this example of it. It is pretty blatant when you, when you lay it out.
2: Yeah, it's nice. It's real subtle character building by, yeah. by doing that, you know, showing that he's he only thinks he, you know, it's like a, something is a good idea if he says it, but if someone else says it, he's like, no, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's, re- it's a subtle way to show that jorah has got uh, ulterior, you know, motives and agendas.
1: Yeah, and it isn't just about other men either. Like, that's a big thing for sure. But Quaith isn't, you know, Quaith isn't trying after Danny's affections, obviously. Uh, that's that's one, he's one. T- person that Danny would prefer over Quaith, probably, <laughs> even after all these other things. Yep. Now, it was, so it's kind of ironic that Quaith might have been more likely to get Danny to go to Asha'i by saying nothing at all. <laughs> she took the hairy Bear's advice over that of the Masked binder, which at the time probably sounded smart. But now you know that Jorah wasn't so trustworthy. Maybe Quaith wasn't either. But instead of going east, she goes west towards an army of Unsullied and a Myrny's not and far away from Ashi. And if you're thinking this means we'll never see Ashi in person, well, you're probably right. Well, almost certainly right. From the SSM archives, so spake Martin, that is, 2008. He was asked, will we see Ashi?" He answered, only in flashback and memory, if at all. Well, no need to trouble yourself, George. We here have got plenty of info on the place already, as you can tell by the length of this episode. And he gave us a nice chunk of info on the world of Ice and Fire, or in the world of Ice and Fire, after giving us a good bit in the main five books. But of course, it's all very spaced out. Now, unless LML's theory about Marwyn bringing Danny a glass candle works out, our best hope for flashbacks and memory lies with another Shadow Binder, and our most prominent character with knowledge of the place, Melisandra of Ashai. She is the only POV character who has been to Ashai, And since we know we're not getting any new POV characters, except in Prologues and Epilogues, where I suppose there's some potential melisandre is the only character who can have a flashback memory scene of ashai though without that happening
2: yeah and earlier i said we hadn't had any povs from anybody who's been to ashai i guess what i meant to say was we haven't had any flashbacks in any povs obviously we did get that right we got that one melisandre chapter and obviously people think that's where we might see a flashback we just haven't gotten it yet so just to be correct now, fingers crossed. Yes. However, we see a shy, whether it's through my uh, little glass candle idea or through a more likely a Melisandre flashback. I think that the goal for Martin is to keep it fairly mysterious. He doesn't want to mm-hmm. peel the veil of secrecy away and and show us exactly what it's like, because then it loses some of the creepy factor. And any sort of vision or flashback glimpse of a shy would accomplish this goal. So I think it really makes more sense that we're not physically going there plus i mean who wants like three chapters of danny on a boat in the jade sea so <laughs> that way people like us can still make entertaining podcasts trying to figure out what the what exactly uh, is going on there
1: don't you want to see daenerys meet uh, a, a friendly dwarf named nickel and have a journey <laughs> like tyrions <laughs> oh god oh, nickel <laughs> sailing around for a while well anyway as the, <laughs> no. as the as the possibility of anyone actually going to Ashai fades away and the Possibility of me stopping making bad puns at any point in the future. Melisandre is introduced. And she immediately goes about showing us everything we need to know about R'hllor. Daenerys comes to represent blood and fire like her house. Melisandre brings shadow and fire like her god. You can't, it's hard to miss the overlap there, though.
2: That's right. And the uh, lesser known name of R'hllor is uh, the god of flame and shadow. He's not just the lord of light. Mm-hmm. And personally, I notice a bit more shadow than light coming from this fire god.
1: Yeah, Melisandre likes to spin it, but talking how there's no shadow without light. But I don't find her arguments convincing. They're interesting, but yeah. yeah. As for the shadow side of things, nothing says shadow binder. Like birthing a shadow baby on screen, where we have zero room to wonder whether it really happened or not. Like, was that real? Did that really happen? It happened off screen? No, nope, we saw it right through Davos' point of view, where you could say that it was proved beyond a shadow of a
2: doubt. Ah, so we got a whole, what, minute and a half, was that, without a pun? That pun pun hurt me, too. (laughs) (laughs) So Mel claims that shadows are the servants of light. Like we said, we're a bit dubious on that one. But whatever the case, those Shadowbinder mother- is a pretty freaking hardcore. Journeying into the heart of darkness, birthing shadow babies. Maybe a little astral projection on the side, necromancy, if you're especially lucky. Nice folks. One has to wonder <laughs> what's behind the mask, just like one wonders what's in the heart of the shadow, and what this dark truth is that waits for Danny in Ashai by the shadow.
1: Yeah, and there are there other people like Melisandre there or Quaithe. Good choice, not going there, Danny. Good, good job. Maybe Jorah was right for once, although he was wrong for a uh, while.
2: Eventually, he was right. Eventually,
1: yeah, right for the wrong reasons. Though there is at least one group of people who would see her in a good light. People of Ashai, that is one group there. They'd see her as a savior, in fact. And I don't mean the slave she's freed. I mean the savior, not a savior. And those would be the people who worship fire itself as the one true god. The Red Priests. We can't stray too deep into subtopics like this one, or we'll get lost and never find us shy again. And the Red Priests are a big one. So cutting to the chase, the main point here is that they think Daenerys is Azor Ahai reborn. We don't know about the high priests around Essos, like everywhere, but the high priest of the Great Red Temple in Volantis, which is apparently the largest one, his name's Benero, and he proclaims this regularly to huge crowds, as Haldan explains to Tyrion. Haldun nodded. Benero has sent forth the word from Volantis. Her coming is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. From smoke and salt was she born to make the world anew. She is Azor Ahai returned... And her triumph over darkness will bring a summer that will never end. Death itself will bend its knee, and all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. So if the largest red temple in the known world is preaching that, well, it's a big deal even if it's not true. Because the people are going to believe the high priest, accurate or not. Bonero is not just giving his personal opinion. He's representing the official position of the entire faith as shown to us. The Red Temple is explicitly calling for the Volantines to go to war on the side of Daenerys, and Benero has also sent Makoro to her. Now, to be clear, neither Benero nor Makoro seem to be from Ashai, though we don't have any way of knowing if they've been there. For all we know, it's like some sort of pilgrimage. Like, you aren't a real red priest unless you've gone to Ashai, read the ancient tomes and prophecies, and witnessed the darkness and flame of the Shadow. something like that. We can't be specific, but it sounds kind of cool and certainly possible. But either way, I suppose Melisandre didn't get the message. While she's waiting for Stannis to wake dragons from stone in Book Two going forward, Danny has already performed that miracle at the end of Book One.
2: Right, and this shows essentially that Mel doesn't keep in very close contact with the Red Temple anymore. Elsewise, she might have heard about Danny. I can picture her now getting word of Danny's miraculous, uh, Danny's miracle via glass candle. Who, Daenerys? Who? Dragons? Really? Three of them? Well, shit.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, a quick summarization here. Who thinks Daenerys is Azor Ahai? Makoro? Quait seems to think so. Now, even Maester Aemon thinks that she's the prince that was promised. And here's where we point out that the prince that was promised and Azor Ahai are the same prophecy. Almost identical. They're just, one came from Valyria and one came from Ashai, but they're reading the same information about the future. So, without getting too deep into that, Prince that was promised Azor Ahai—they're like this. So, it's the same thing. Marwyn the Mage, as much as he is big on the occult and understanding it, he's not actually big on prophecies. He doesn't think they can be fully trusted. He doesn't think they're bunk, but he's not big on trusting them fully. The wording—you know—you can easily—the wording can easily throw you. But despite that, he's still going to Danny, sailing to Danny, to see what's up.
2: Yeah, it's one of those things. Prophecy will bite your you know what off, but goddamn, <laughs> if you just can't help, keep coming back for more. <laughs> and uh, I, I think what's interesting is that all these people that see Danny as Azor High look at the dragons as proof. So it's well known that Azor High Reborn has something to do with dragons. Definitely.
1: And of that group, let's consider how they might be a help to Danny. Quaithe might be offering help, but she doesn't exactly speak plainly. And. It's hard to see how much help she can give from afar. Aemon can't do any helping, he's dead. Marwan certainly may be of help. But the Red Temple throwing its weight behind Danny, that would that's probably the biggest thing. The slaves in Volantis tend to follow the Red Religion, and we've seen multiple signs of the Red Temple stirring them up for a revolt. But these are not the good guys, necessarily. Helping Danny doesn't make them good people. Burning people alive, including children, wishing for a summer without end, which doesn't sound good, not as bad as a winner without end, but pretty damn bad. Just close to being as bad as that. Drawing forth shadow assassins from the life fires of a human being. This is ominous stuff. This isn't good guy stuff. Plus, Quaith even warns against Makoro. He's the dark flame from that list of symbols that are coming to her.
2: Yes, and let's not forget that their hero and savior, Zora is famous for stabbing his wife with a sword in what sounds like a blood magic ritual. The legend also says that the moon cracked open when he stabbed Nissa Nissa to forge Lightbringer. So, as I've suggested, Azor High sounds like a little bit of a dickhead and a blood magic, a blood magic user to, to boot. Yeah, and this all falls in line quite
1: nicely, or perhaps not so nicely, with other high prices paid for magic used in Ashai or magics in general. Now, it's fair to point out that, the le- as we see, rumors can go far from the truth. Daenerys is already being blamed for Quentin's death, even though she wasn't even there. Now, that's something we have to remember about the Azor Ahai legend. He may be, he may look like a bad guy in some ways. He may not have killed his wife. Maybe he did like Kaldrogo. Drogo. Khal Drogo was already, she was already in a coma. I, I'm just throwing out very random possibilities just to show maybe what we know about Azor Ahai isn't quite accurate either because it is an old story. In fact, we should be sure that it's not quite accurate. Marwin reminds us of why we can't trust the wording of prophecies. But regardless, though, Regardless of the truth, again, what matters is what people are being told and what they actually believe. Truth doesn't matter in the face of what people believe. And for those who believe Daenerys Targaryen will destroy more than she will save, that she will be an agent of destruction as much as, or more so than being a savior, this may be one of your best arguments. It's not just the dragons. That's kind of obvious how much destructive potential they have. But consider hordes of zealots worshiping a god born of fire and shadow in distant Ashai. These people are all over Essos. They're getting fired up. No pun intended. Okay, pun intended. (laughs) And these are the these are people who burn people alive. They're zealots. They're they're not reasonable people. Imagine a whole lot of them coming to Westeros supporting Danny. Ah, yikes. Yeah, I mean, this is not the. She might be able to find a way to use this support. It's not necessarily what she wants, though. Now imagine these people interacting with the Sparrows. Two groups of fanatics clashing. Ooh. Double yikes. Yeah.
2: I mean, that sounds like a good way to conjure up some actual fire and blood. And I mean the non-magical kind. <laughs>
1: Yeah, literal fire and blood everywhere. Now, we see a variety of red priests in the books. Makoro and Thoros and Benero along with Melisandre. And we see them do different things and behave quite differently. I like that. It's, it's realistic. They're from different parts of the world for the most part, too. And Melisandre is the only one we have seen with a fixation for burning people as of yet out of those groups. We know that others do it. But it doesn't, we don't know if it's like something that they do a lot of or just a little. But we're not going to, in any case, we're not going to be surprised if we see other Red Priests start doing it. Thoros and Beric are the only ones we have seen raising the dead with the fiery kiss. But many people expect that Melisandre might tap into this very power to help raise Jon Snow from the dead.
2: Yes, and Thoros, meanwhile, is the only one who can claim to have been one of Robert Baratheon's drinking buddies. So <laughs> perhaps any day he'll see Dana- uh, Danny in his fires.
1: Yeah, so let's take bets on which of these red priests is going to remain ignorant of their own savior being reborn into the world (laughs) with dragons. (laughs) Melisandre and Thoros are both two very different red priests, but they're equally ignorant on this at this point. It's almost funny. Despite the differences among their different red priests in the story, Flame Reading seems to be a power all the red priests have access to, though with differing results.
2: Yes, and I can't also help but notice the similarities between glass candles and the fire visions of the Red Priest, which I kind of alluded to earlier. This draws another parallel between R'hllorism and Valyrian magic, both rooted in fire and blood. The candles seem to be focused and controlled, uh, like a you know a method for fairly clean and direct communication an astral projection, while the visions, the fire visions, they speak in terms of symbols. So perhaps frozen fire is more stable than living fire? I don't know. In both cases fire magic seems to be a medium for magical sight.
1: Yeah, i buy it. It's it's, it's a cool kind of science and magic kind of being combined. You've got, you know, the frozen fire would be more focused. Yeah, more stable. Fire. Yeah. Yeah, I like that idea. Either way, fire, it's not just for burning people anymore. Now let's talk about the culmination of all these magics and the culmination of these prophecies. The center of all this is Azor Ahai. So of course we need to delve into him a bit or her.
2: It is also written that there are annals in Ashai of such a darkness and of a hero who fought against it with a red sword. His deeds are said to have been performed before the rise of Illyria, in the earliest ages when Old Gis was first forming its empire. This legend has spread west from Ashai, and the followers of Alor claim that this hero was named Azor Ahai and prophesy his return.
1: Now, just like the magical topics, we have a lot we could potentially talk about with concerning Azor Ahai, such as other people who f- maybe are fulfilling the prophecy on their own, because we aren't limited to one Azor Ahai necessarily. But that's one of the things we're going to leave off, because we can't cover Azor Ahai. We can't cover that whole topic here in this episode. It's a bit much. So we are going to talk- cover the legend of Azor Ahai and Lightbringer and how it relates to Ashai, though, and how it relates to Daenerys, because there's... So much of Ashai relates around Daenerys. And all these other ideas we've been building up at the same time, well, that's where we're at.
2: Yeah, I was about to say, I've, I'm about three, two and a half hour podcast deep into discussing Azor Ahai, and I'm not, I'm not finished yet. <laughs>
1: but, yeah, uh, there's
2: no end to that. <laughs> so let's let's make a good point here. Now, relorism is not said to originate in Asshai. Uh The legend of Azor Ahai, however, is said to originate in Ashai. Now, the fact that the R'hllorists see Azor Ahai reborn as their prophesied savior means that they have a vested interest in Ashai. The list of dark magicians who are known to frequent Ashai that we quoted from before included red priests. So we can conclude that Mel is not the first to study there, which makes a lot of sense, because again, the prophecy of their savior comes from Ashai. It's like a holy land or something,
1: maybe, in a sense. Uh, we've also got this So Spake Martin from way back in 1998, where George lists off some of the various gods worshipped around his world, naming the Black Goat, the Dothraki Horse God, etc. And he finishes by saying, And R'hllor, the god of flame and shadow, worshipped in Ashai in the east, who assumes more importance in A Clash of Kings. There you go. That shows you right there. George has been associating Ashai and Relor
2: since the very beginning, and a lot of these related themes. Oh, man, that's a great find. And in fact, let me say, I love it when you dig through those dusty old SSMs and unearth those little pearls of wisdom like that. Adds a lot, I think.
1: Yeah, uh, it's kind of like our version of digging in the
2: ancient texts of Ashai. <laughs> <laughs> it says here in an interview in 1998 that... Uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, it's especially insightful to look, about, uh, look at how Martin was conceiving something like Relorism early on. Because it gives us a clue about what the main narrative purpose was intended to be. And we can see that it had something to do with the Shy.
1: Yeah, and as we know, Melisandre is wrong about a lot of things. She sets her sights on someone who isn't actually Azor Ahai, for example. But we can learn a lot from her anyway, because she gives us such full descriptions of who Azor Ahai is supposed to be. We hear a quote from these ultra-ancient texts from Ashai, not from the So Spake Martin collection, in A Clash of Kings.
3: Melisandre was robed all in scarlet satin and blood velvet, her eyes as red as the great ruby that glistened at her throat as if it too were a fire. In ancient books of Ashai, it is written that there will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour, a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword— and that sword shall be Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, and he who clasps it shall be Azor High come again, and the darkness shall flee before him.
1: That's a lot of different red and blood. All Look at that. Ruby, fire, ro- scarlet, blood velvet. That's a lot of red in that sentence. <laughs> yeah,
2: Elodia sometimes has a hard time with those sentences. <laughs>
1: It makes sense that the same old books in Ashai, which speak of Azor Ahai's return, would speak of his original incarnation. It's also interesting to note that Azor Ahai's deeds with Lightbringer are specifically noted to predate Valyria. Another book which speaks about the original Azor Ahai is the Jade Compendium, written by Valentine adventurer Colloquo Votar. Nice name. He sailed to the east and all the lands of the Jade Sea. We're not sure if he went to Ashai or not. He probably did. It's, It's in that area, and he was an explorer of sorts. But it does, either way, corroborate the idea that the legend of Azor Ahai is from that part of the world.
2: Yeah, and the World of Ice and Fire also tells us that there are several parallel myths to Azor Ahai, which talk of a hero with a flaming sword who fought the darkness of the Long Night, but with names that have been changed to reflect a more local flavor, like Harkun the Hero, from the former Empire of Harkun. Neferion, from the city of Nefer, and Yintar, who is presumably a Yitish version of Azor Ahai. All of these places are east of the Bones Mountains, what you'd call far eastern Essos.
1: Yes. Now, we don't know which of these versions was the original. You know, Azor might actually not be the original name. It doesn't matter. The point is, there was some sort of chain of cultural transmission in the ancient past, and it seems clear that the legend of a guy with a flaming sword who fought the Long Night... It's from that area, and it might be from specifically from Ashai. Uh, if it's not from there, well that's the place where they
2: remember it. That's the place where it's recorded. It's what you would call that neck of the woods. So the next thing to understand about Azor High and his legend is that it is fundamentally a working of blood magic, like we've been saying. Like the magic of Ashai, it seems to parallel Valyrian magic because it's reliant on fire and blood. Lightbringer is a flaming sword forged in the sacred fires and tempered in Nissa's heart blood. It's like a recipe blood for fire. It's from the same cookbook that the Valerians were using. Remember that the Valerians forged their famous swords in dragon fire and almost certainly with the use of human sacrifice and therefore blood magic.
1: Yeah. And remember that Beric with his undead blood touches his sword and it turns on fire. That's, that harkens to Lightbringer too. Of course it was his own blood rather than, you know, someone he loved, but same basic idea.
2: Beric's a gentleman.
1: And Beric is also a foreshadowing for so many different things. He, he's, he, he's, he, he represents so many. Th- it's amazing. We can't really get into his Don't get me started. Here. Don't get me but, started. Well, holy crap, that guy is just like the, the focus of so many different. He's a, he's a microcosm of so many other big story he's,
2: he's got one eye and sits in a weirwood throne the first time we see him. So <laughs> yeah. make of that what
1: you will. <laughs> he, 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 somehow he symbolizes the North, and relore at the same time. And yeah, the, I've got, a, I got some things.
2: ideas about that. But let's keep moving.
1: Yeah, definitely. In <laughs> fact, uh, this recipe or formula is actually inscribed in Valyrian glyphs, meaning the recipe for what happened with Daenerys. Recipe used loosely, because we don't know exactly how it happened. But what, what I mean is that val- the horn brought back from Valyria by Euron Crozai, Dragonbinder, it says blood for fire, fire for blood. Euron claims to have been to eye for what it's worth, and of course he's quite fixated on acquiring a dragon too.
2: Indeed, and when Daenerys awakens her dragons, like we said, it's more the same. Blood for fire, fire for blood. My very first episode of Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire is pretty much dedicated to showing the parallels between Dany's hatching of dragons and the forging of Lightbringer, and I can tell you that it's definitely too big of a topic to explore at any length in the middle of this podcast, but what we have already pointed out is that both were consistent with what we know of Valyrian magic, blood and fire, and the results of the two rituals are somewhat analogous. We got either a dragon or a flaming sword. Well, I should say three dragons or a flaming sword. But the thing is, the Red Comet is compared to both dragons and flaming swords, as I love to point out, and the dragons themselves were actually compared to a flaming sword above the world by Zarozo and Daxos in A Dance with Dragons.
1: Yeah, Azor Ahai Reborn brings all these things together. He's supposed to wake dragons. He's supposed to wield a flaming sword. His coming is supposed to be heralded by a red comet. There's symbols of dragons and flaming swords alike. I uh, recently... Uh, on Twitter, I asked you guys watchingers to tell us what you think Lightbringer was, and the most popular answer was that Danny's dragons were Lightbringer. So, a lot of you are online with this, and I'm sure most of you even have considered it whether or not you agree uh, that they represent Lightbringer. Could this be the truth waiting for Danny in Ash'ai? That she is Azor Ahai reborn and her dragons are Lightbringer? Hmm. And that she has to use them to fight the Long Night, as the original Azor Ahai did.
2: Yeah, that's that's that could be the going north part, you know. Yeah. So I certainly think, uh, to the extent that Danny is Azor High reborn, the dragons are her Lightbringer. Now I'm a fan of the idea that Azor High reborn, quote unquote, is something that manifests in more than one person, and the same is true of Lightbringer. So I do think John is also a manifestation of Azor High reborn, and he has a dream of wielding a literal burning red sword while he's defending the wall. So it may be that he'll get the red sword, Danny gets the dragons, you know, so on and so forth. But uh, that's, anyways, all of the above is my answer. So
1: <laughs> the important thing here for us is that Danny's dragon waking ritual parallels the forging of Lightbringer, and both follow the Lurian magic recipe of fire and blood. The Azor Ahai story leads back to Ashai. And Valyrian magic may also lead back to Ashai and the trail of people who learn to control dragons may also lead back to Ashai. So if the truth waiting for Danny and Ashai has something to do with dragons and Lightbringer, well, not only does it make a lot of sense, but I'm really not sure what else it could be. That's the overall one of the few <laughs> things. What else has been presented to us about Ashai? It really seems straightforward when you lay it out like this. It turns out the answer was
2: the deep ones. <laughs> yeah. first people. <laughs> How did they
1: get in there again?
2: Uh, now the original Azor High, of course, had a flaming sword, and the Reborn version is supposed to have a flaming sword and dragons. So... If dragons were lurking in ancient Ashai, perhaps the original Azor Ahai might have been a dragon lord. I certainly think so. I it's mean, very possible, all, yeah. What good is waking dragons from stone if you're not a dragon lord? If the original Azor Ahai wasn't a dragon lord, why would anyone think the reborn Azor Ahai would be able to wake dragons from stone? Well, I suppose the answer to that might be
1: it's just what the prophecy told them. But still, that doesn't discount the theory. It's it it would make sense for them to be parallels of each other so azor ahai having a dragon or dragons
2: hey why not why not it's i guess my point is that like p- people don't really talk about it very much the idea that azor ahai maybe or could have been a dragon lord and it just seems kind of obvious i mean we don't know but if the reborn one is supposed to wake dragons then it's just one of those things you naturally think about but so yeah. let me let me give you this this is a juicy tidbit from my buddy Jay stargarian of the westeros.org forum shout out j stargarian He passed this along to me, and so, in the the language of Vedic Sanskrit, the phrase Azor Ahai actually translates pretty cleanly as fire dragon. Boom! Now, that's not a coincidence, (laughs) because George has clearly based large parts of the Azor Ahai legend on Mithras and the Mithraic mysteries. The figure of Mithras originally comes from the Indian holy scriptures known as the Vedas, which are written in Sanskrit. So, it makes sense that he would take a couple of Sanskrit words for his Mithraic flaming sword hero... Uh, Azora High, the fire dragon.
1: And remember that he's used that device before, too. Remember that bran means crow in Welsh.
2: There you go, same idea.
1: Yeah. All right, a quick batch of shout outs here to our Patreon Cell Sword captains to Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to Long Lives, Quick Deaths, Cold Beer, and Warm Women, Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, captain of the Red Tide, resistance is futile, Gary and Pike wielder of grave embrace of Valyrian Steel Axe. He's captain of the Iron Wave. Iron's Kiss is eternal. And also to Captain Darton of the Mother's Men. You can get a motto and sellsword name of your own.
2: Check us out on Patreon slash History of Westeros. Dude, your your Patreon subscribers are their names are getting better, man. Those are some fierce characters. Those are great.
1: <laughs> people it's building off they're building off each other. Yeah. Everybody sees the the cool names and then people uh, wanna I love get it. their own. So I'm all for that. Nothing like having a cool name. Alright, part three. Let's go to Ashai itself, right? Having George R. R. Martin tell us that we'll never actually go to Ashai in a point of view, that we'll only see it in a memory or flashback. Well, that's a bit of a bummer, really. But George is a cool guy, and he may have realized he was leading us on a bit earlier in the series. I mean, we talked about how much Ashai looked like it was gonna happen in the in Game of Thrones, how much it's mentioned, how much Jorah's talking about it, how much Quaith is talking about it. So, he maybe, when he changed his mind, he decided, well, hey, I'm still going to give them some info. So, he put some stuff in the world of Ice and Fire. Some good nuggets are in there. So,
2: we don't need point of views. Let's go to Ashai on our own. We'll paint the best picture we can. Sounds great. We're going to go fast and furious with this Ashai information. So, hold on your seat. And then we will stop to ponder some of the questions it raises because, well, there's some pretty weird sh- stuff going on here. So, as we go through, We'll make note of some of these mysteries and then we'll take a moment to speculate on them after we're done taking our little guided tour of Ashai in the Shadowlands.
1: We've already seen that Ashai is synonymous with mystery, sorcery and darkness, and that it's actually a place where magic is more potent. For Westerosi, it is also associated with being far, far away. But that feeling seems to pervade elsewhere as well. The implication is that it probably seems unwelcome and remote even to people who live a lot closer to it than Westeros, unless you're Jorah Mormont. <laughs> Now, this is also how rumors about the place spread. In general, sailors are known as a kind of an exaggerating group of people and sailors represent a huge percentage of the people who go there. So a lot of what the world at large knows about Ashai is filtered through the lens of sailors. So it is appropriate to consider that much of what we know about Ashai might be fanciful. But there's no ignoring the eyewitness accounts of reputable sources like Marwin and Melisandre and the actual powers of those like, well, those same people
2: and Quaith. Yeah, indeed. And Yandel even mentions that Marwan has been there and has brought back current information in the section, or at least he mentions in the section on Ashai that Marwin has brought back information that Yandel then incorporates into his little summary. So it's kind of cool. Even this uh, The World of Ice and Fire, you know, the conceit is that it's Yandel's little fake history book. And so in there, he's like, yeah, and we got some information from Marwan, who's been to Ashai. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> Another little Marwan sh- uh, shout-out.
1: Yeah. Uh, the first thing to know about the idea of the shadow is, it's not a, metaphorical, more, eh, not a metaphorical reference to dark magic, although that works as a secondary reference, but the place is literally draped in shadow. Travelers tell us that the city
2: is built entirely of black stone. Holes, hovels, temples, palaces, streets, walls, bazaars, all. Some say as well that the stone of Ashai has a greasy, unpleasant feel to it, that it seems to drink the light. Seeming tapers and torches and fires alike. The nights are very black and shy. All agree, and even the brightest days of summer are somehow gray and gloomy. Well, there's the infamous greasy black stone. The stone, uh, that stone actually drinks up the light, and we can see that it's a regional effect as well. No wonder it's called the Capital S Shadow. Yeah, something is seriously messed up there.
1: One has to wonder what is the cause of the darkness that lingers over this area. The area around Ashi is probably worse than inside the city itself, as awful as that sounds. There's a river running through Ashi and it seems real messed up, too. The waters of the ash
2: glisten black beneath the noonday sun and glimmer with a pale green phosphorescence by night. And such fish as swim in the river are blind and twisted, so deformed and hideous to look upon that only fools and shadowbinders will eat of their
1: flesh. Those blind and deformed fish may well be the only animals in the
2: area of any kind, as Marwin the Mage reports. An account by Archmaester Marwin confirms reports that no man rides in a shy, be he warrior, merchant, or prince. There are no horses in a shy, no elephants, no mules, no donkeys, no zorses, no camels, no dogs. Such beasts, when brought there by ship, soon die. The malign influence of the ash and its polluted waters have been implicated, as it is well understood from Harmon's On Miasmas that animals are more sensitive to the foulness exuded by such waters, even without drinking them. Septon Barth's writings speculate more wildly, referring to the higher mysteries with little evidence.
1: Ah, kooky Barth with his higher mysteries spiel, what are you going to do? What well, actually, you? I'm going to believe him. What about you? <laughs> <laughs> Now elsewhere, Yandel tells us that there are reportedly no children in Ashai, and if animals sicken and die, and no plants will grow there, well, it's not a surprise children wouldn't do there, uh, wouldn't do so well there either. As for the land around Ashai,
2: beyond the walls of Ashai, food is scarce, but gold and gems are common. Though some will say the gold of the Shadowlands is as unhealthy in its own way as the fruits that grow there. What kind of fruit grows in Ashai? Why? Acai berries, of course. Oh, jeez. See, I can do puns, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. So, not sure about the gold, but Melisandra does use rubies in her magic. They might be a special kind of shadow ruby, Sure, perhaps? yeah, why not? And a, and a bit later on, it says... Beyond the walls of a shy little grows save Ghost Cross, whose glassy, glowing stalks are inedible.
1: So when you go to a shy, make sure to bring a snack, or several... Uh, the city itself, if we examine it, it might help narrow down the source of this toxicity that permeates the area, or at least we might narrow it down a little bit if we can't get the full answer, because we probably won't get the full answer.
2: Ashai <laughs> is a large city, sprawling out for leagues on both banks of the Black River Ash. Beyond its enormous land walls is ground enough for Volantis, Karth, and the King's Landing to stand side by side, and still have room enough for Old Town. Wow. Ashai is freaking huge. This is one of the most interesting things that we learned in all of the world of Ice and Fire. It's literally the largest city anyone has ever heard of and it's older than time, built by somebody whose name is forgotten. This raises all kinds of questions. Why is it so big? Who built it that way? And who would need so much such a large city thousands of years in the past? The mystery deepens when we learn that this city of greasy black stone is not a metropolis but an ex Yet the population of shy is no greater than that of a good-sized market town. By night, the streets are deserted, and only one building in ten shows a light. Even at the height of day, there are no crowds to be seen, no tradesmen shouting their wares in noisy markets, no women gossiping at a
1: well. So massive amounts of unused space and lack of markets despite ample wealth. There's a lot we can glean from this. Why is there so much unused space? Where did everyone go? I don't assume it was built like this. Given what we know so far, why you can see the why you could see rather why the majority would stay away, let alone migrate, despite what is probably a very low demand of real estate. It might even be free. You could just walk into a house and take it to say, hey, this is my house now. But people aren't going. Most people are not willing, but some are. Ambition for wealth can easily overcome such considerations for some types of people, who no doubt convince themselves
2: their fears are unreasonable. Despite its forbidding aspects, a shy by the shadow has, for many centuries, been a thriving port, where ships from all over the known world have come to trade, crossing vast and stormy seas, most arrived laden with foodstuffs and wine.
1: We know why they bring food to trade. Ashai essentially has none of its own, but they and water too. But they have lots of wealth. Golden gems are called common. And this is well known. Word spreads when you pay high prices for something like food. You want to give gold and gems for food. Yeah, people are going to be interested in that. But Ashai has magical knowledge to offer also. We've seen all manner of magicians and sorcerers come to Ashai to study the arcane arts. And Miri Mazdur herself tells Amy that she went to Ashai
2: by caravan when she was longer, younger to learn magic and healing arts herself. Yeah, and while we're talking trade, we've already seen that Ashai deals in various types of poisons and powders, and that uh, poisoners are amongst the people who apparently go there. That was in the list. And uh, occasionally, they deal in dragon's eggs, if Illyrio can be believed, along with... Certain things spoken of only in whispers... Things that cannot be found anywhere upon the earth, save in the black bazaars of shy. Another item we hear of that comes from Asshai is dragonglass. And this is important because it indicates some amount of volcanic activity. That's basically a prerequisite for being a good home, or especially an origin point, for dragonkind, which fits in with certain other rumors. On its way from the mountains of the Morn to the sea, the ash runs howling through a narrow cleft in the mountains, between towering cliffs so steep and close that the river is perpetually in shadow, save for a few moments at midday when the sun is at its zenith. In the caves that pockmark the cliffs, demons and dragons and worse make their lairs. The farther from the city one goes, the more hideous and twisted these creatures become. Until at last one stands before the doors of Stigai, the Corpse City at the Shadow's Heart, where even the Shadowbinders fear to tread, or so the stories say. <laughs> well then, so that concludes our guided tour of Ashai by the Shadow please exit to the rear doors. We encourage you to take advantage of the gift shop in the Stigi Visitor's Center where you can find a lovely little sculpture of a demon riding a dragon.
1: (laughs) Well, seriously, that sounds a bit exaggerated, right? All that stuff about twisted creatures and corpse cities. But hey, something's going on there. Again, there's got to be a seed of truth to this and it could be a lot closer to the truth than we think. Corpse city, shadow, heart. Well, those things sound like the center of the shadow and they might be the source of it one of the things that we're after here. Uh, but on the other side, Corp City might just mean that the air is too toxic. It's a messed up place. Going there means death. It could be something more mundane like that. This would seem magical to most people in the story, though, I think. Just a city where people just die by breathing the air. They wouldn't attribute it to science and chemistry like we would. Either way, though, there's a major mystery here.
2: Yeah, I'd say so. So, uh... Okay, so let's summarize everything that we've just said in like three sentences. Ashai is the largest city in the world, but nine buildings and ten are empty. It's built of greasy black stone, which drinks up the sunlight, and shadow and darkness cloak the city and land all around it. Exports are gold, gems, dragon glass, and poison. It's called a hinge of the world, where magic is stronger, and magicians of the darkest variety come there to study. There are no children or animals in Ashai. Hardly anything grows nearby and there's a nasty, toxic river running through it. Upriver, you'll find all all kinds of icky things that defy comprehension, from demons to dragons to corpse cities, whatever those are. (laughs) Is
1: Is this just what it's always been like? That's a big question, but I would say probably not. Just because it's relatively empty now doesn't mean it always was. It's very reasonable to think that all those abandoned buildings weren't always abandoned. Part four, Deus Ex Metropolis. All right, time for some speculation. Some of it wild, some of it not so wild, all of it fun. You know we won't just be pulling things out of our
2: shadow lands. We wouldn't do that to you for a lot of reasons. Uh, No, instead we'll try (laughs) to connect a few dots and make a picture of a dragon. Yeah,
1: strange stone. Let's start with that greasy black stone and the questions about lingering toxicity and shadow. The stone is said to drink the light around it, dampening hearth fires even. I wonder if it dampens heat as well, as that would be very useful in a hot place. But drinking the light, that sounds like the last thing they'd need is more darkness. I mean, how do you study ancient texts when the very walls are stealing your reading light? (laughs) The black stone might explain the darkness around Ashai itself. In fact, it has to be part of it. But of course, the entire area seems shadowed and blighted. So unless the hills themselves are made from greasy black stone, there is probably a deeper level of causation here to explain the darkness and shadow. Especially given the vague notion that there's a source or heart of the shadow. So yeah, guessing the stones
2: are just making things worse. Right, and we're going to go a little bit more in depth on the Orly black stones in our next joint episode. Details to come. But for our purposes here... We just want to mention the next largest assemblage of black stone after Ashai, which is found in the jungles of Sothorios at the ancient city of Yin. A ruin older than time, built of oily black stone, Yin has remained a desolation for many thousands of years, yet the jungle that surrounds it on every side has scarce touched it. Yin does not have a toxic river ash or a heart of shadow to explain it, at least not that we know of. We only have the oily black stone and plants won't come near it. That's a clue that the oily black stone of Ashai might itself be a source of corruption.
1: What if the ancients didn't know the stones would have the effect they did when they were first made? Like they didn't know the toxicity built into it, in other words. That would add a tragic note to an ancient story. Making a city out of toxic stone by accident? Oops. Regardless, though, like LML says, the stones don't explain the river ash... It flows down from the Shadowlands already corrupted, doesn't explain the Shadow itself, the heart of the Shadow where even Shadowbinders fear to tread, and the supposed demons and dragons where they roam free. I don't think the stone is responsible for those things either. Indeed, it's almost like something happened here. The doom of Ashai?
3: Hmm.
1: Much of what we unearthed with regards to Ashai actually applies to the nebulous area next to Ashai to the north and east the shadow or shadow lands looking at the map again you see that the shadow lands are a long mountainous area gradually narrowing into a curved point where ashai rests between the mountains and the shore on both sides ghost grass exists in massive amounts just like with any other city resources are gathered from surrounding areas and from trade ashai is rich in exotic trade goods and the shadow lands appear to be the source of these they pretty much have to be Ashai is next to the Shadowlands and large bodies of water and that's it. There isn't anything
2: else next to Ashai. That's all. That's their only neighbors, really. Right, it's their only option for enticing trade, and we've seen that trade is the only source of food for the residents of Ashai such as they are. So despite the Shadowlands lack of farmland, Ashai is built in a geographically advantage- advantageous place in terms of sea traffic and controlling the Saffron Straits, which run right by Ashai. And in fact, the name Saffron Straits implies a lucrative spice trade coming through those straits. We're actually told in the story that saffron is more valuable than gold.
1: So there's other cities to the east that Ashai is trading with, apart from the ones that we're familiar with to the west. The map does not cut off at Ashi, it's just the map cuts off at Ashi. (laughs) The world still extends beyond there, and we can only guess what other cool things might be out there. But back on topic, why is Ashi so big but so empty? Why was it built this way if it can't actually sustain these people? That's a really big and interesting question. I don't think, this is why I think it wasn't, toxic or nasty in the first place. I think something at first made it a good idea. And when it was originally done, it probably didn't... Now it seems insane to have a city there. But at the time, it might have made a lot of sense. So yes, something happened.
2: Right. You just don't need to build the largest city on Earth in order for a few thousand people to have a place to study dark magic. I mean... Large cities are always built by wealthy civilizations, and they require lots of food to be brought in from the outlying farmlands to sustain their large urban population. You can't do that with sea trade alone, so for a shy to be filled with capacity, you'd need sizable local farmlands to generate the necessary food, and the area around a has no farmland.
1: Just for a real world example, Rome had such a high population because it grew over the centuries and eventually it really, really relied on food exports. But even Rome could... Imports. You know, had local food. I'm sorry, food imports. But even they had plenty of local things they could bring in. By, by late in Rome's life, it was drawing its food from Egypt because it was a breadbasket. Where would Ashai have been drawing their food from? No, we don't know. So, but either way, the implication is overwhelming. At some point in the ancient past... Building a city in the spot was smart, but at some point that changed. Eshi used to be massively populated, but what happened? It's not massively populated anymore. Was it just one thing? Was it several things? I mean, lots of time has passed, so it could be several things. But we think maybe it was one big thing. Now, we mentioned that dragonglass is an export from Eshi. This is something we know comes from volcanoes. It's something we know is associated with dragons. Dragonstone is volcanic, and Valyria was as well.
2: Right, and the fires of the Fourteen Flames of Valyria were said to be a source of actual magical power, just as shy is a source of magical power. Could something like the Doom have happened at shy or the nearby Shadowlands? Some kind of disaster, mega-disaster, involving fire magic? Fire magic. Let me get my R in there. We've made a lot of comparisons to Valyria, and we've seen major similarities in magic, prophecy, dragons. We've seen themes of blood and fire running through both. We've seen that there is a pall of magical toxicity hanging over both Ashai and Valyria, the main difference being that Valyria seems to be much worse off. Perhaps that's because it's more recent?
1: Perhaps. And perhaps the Shadowlands are a harbinger of what Valyria will look like hundreds or thousands of years from now. The Doom was only 400 years ago, and in planetary terms, that's not much. Whatever happened in and around Ashai, well, there's been thousands of years for it to recover, apparently. So we could be seeing... A proto-version. But clearly it is still under the sway of something. Even if it's recovered, it's not fully recovered. A a city exists in the midst of this something, whatever it is. Now perhaps in the distant future we'll see a dark, magical city built in the shadow of Old Valyria when the fires of the Earth have cooled sufficiently to allow such to be feasible. This could be the same path Ashai took in the long-distant past. We could be seeing history repeat itself.
2: Yeah, and of course, as for disasters involving fire magic... My moon-meteor-long-night theory would certainly qualify. Mythical astronomy of ice and fire listeners know that I have more than a few ideas about major uh, fire disasters. (laughs) That's right.
1: And in the ET section of the world of ice and fire, there is a mention of a black meteor falling from the sky around the time of the long night. So this isn't just out of nowhere, no doubt. It's something we'll discuss in our next joint podcast. Meteor impacts bring a lot of fire on their own, of course. And they can also trigger volcanic eruptions mm-hmm. and earthquakes. And if there, if there's any magic involved, well, that changes the whole scope of things. So there may be some combination of these events that took place
2: in the Shadowlands. And if you haven't already, check out LML's podcast for more of the Moon Meteor talk. Thank you very much, my friend. Uh, one interesting thing to note about the black meteor in the ET story is that the story ends with the Zor High fighting the darkness with Lightbringer. So it's part of the same myth, if you will. It seems like all of this might be connected. The current state of Ashai in the Shadowlands, fire magic disasters, Azor High in the Long Night, maybe a meteor. Hmm, maybe. We might be able to discern
1: something about the nature of the shadow either way by talking about those who go beyond the walls of Ashai. We're going to go back a bit to the Shadowbinders that we brought up earlier. Now that you're a bit familiar with them, this will make more sense. Why the masks? They
2: alone dare to go upriver past the walls of Ashai into the heart of darkness. So the hostile
1: environment may be responsible for some of the consistent mm, peculiar behaviors that we see, such as remaining anonymous, an apparent local theme.
2: Those who walk the streets of shy are masked and veiled and have a furtive air about them. Oft as not, they walk alone or ride in palanquins of ebony and iron, hidden behind dark curtains and borne through the dark streets upon the backs of slaves. Everyone? Really? <laughs> That's apparently so,
1: not just Quaithe and her kind. I guess the type of mask differen- uh, differs, but we see this verified elsewhere. It's not just a rumor, apparently. Quentin Martell sees the Asha'i and Volantis. They are wearing masks. Danny sees the only glimpse we have of...
0: The dour and frightening shadow men who covered their arms and legs and chests with tattoos and hid their faces behind masks. But
1: a lot of people do not trust such things. For example, Khaleesi, better a man should swallow scorpions than trust in the spawn of shadows who dare not show their face beneath the sun. It is known. Are these masks concealing damage done to them by living in such an unhealthy area? Humans with twisted appearances remind us of Mantaris, the city of so-called monsters just north of the smoking, ruined Venerian Peninsula. Perhaps it's merely an enduring cultural tradition, these masks, based on mutual secrecy. It fits in an anonymous kind of way. They're all this anonymous magic, anything goes type situation, so everybody kind of keeping to themselves. That kind of fits. And the tattoos remind us of the red priests a bit, some of whom have masks tattooed on their faces, like Bonero and Macoro. But there's more to it, I think.
2: Yeah, and in fact, it's a widely held belief that Melisandre is using a glamour to hide her true appearance, which could be burned, old, tattooed, lizard-like, <laughs> all yeah. of the above. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps another mystery we'll learn more of down the road. Yeah, her mask
1: is of a different sort, but it's a mask still. It's a fitting one. as She tells us that glamours involve shadows.
2: Uh, it's a fitting one? Mm-hmm. Did you do that on purpose? Or? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. So I see uh, I see what you did there. But uh, now we don't exactly know what a shadow binder is, of course. Now, I have a little theory about that. I tend to think that they might be human sorcerers who have transformed themselves through fire magic, something like a fire equivalent of an other. Now, in A Dance with Dragons, we get a Mel POV, and she experiences one of her fire visions. And while this happens, she bleeds black blood and, quote, has the fire inside her, searing her and transforming her. The chapter is also filled with a discussion of how Melisandre barely needs to sleep, hopes one day to not even have to sleep at all. She also thinks about remembering to eat once in a while just so she doesn't freak people out. (laughs) Yeah. So, in other words, she's becoming something other than human, a being of fire. She's being transformed. She has a fire inside her. It's transforming her. So the sentence about only the Shadowbinders dare to journey upriver into the heart of darkness makes me think that perhaps the only people who are able to go there might be fire-transformed beings, and that that is part of becoming a binder. Melisandre seems to be on her way to becoming one of these fire beings, and perhaps Quave is one too, we don't know. Danny thinks of herself as being fire-made flesh, like the dragons, and that also gives us the sort of idea of a sorcerer made of pure fire.
1: Now, there's an interesting parallel as well that I think is worth bringing up, even though it may seem like it's not connected at all. The idea of Melisandre transforming herself into a being of fire, so that, or transforming herself in some way. It doesn't have to be a being of fire. Just in order to travel to the shadow. That's a very tight parallel to, what, to Jon Snow's death. Jon Snow is dying And coming back, probably, but he'll be different. He'll be uh, a supernatural being, probably. And one of the expectations, if you're at all like me, is that this transformation will allow him to go into the north, where it's freezing and cold and humans can't survive. This is a very similar going, transforming yourself to be able to handle the cold, transforming yourself to be able to handle the fire
2: or the shadow. Right, right. Doesn't sound crackpot when you put it that way. No, think of cold hands. I mean, he's able to roam around north of the wall precisely because he's undead and transformed in some state.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, it's interesting when you compare the higher up red priests, they have these masks of tattooed flames and the mass shadow binders and the mass shadow men who are covered in tattoos. These things aren't necessarily connected in a direct way, but there's no ignoring the similarities and the possibilities are there. It's very fruitful. Makoro in particular is noted to look like a demon because of his mask and his pitch black skin. He's not black like we think of, you know, African-Americans. He is black, like pitch black, literal black. In yeah,
2: the, de- the description is very dramatic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And he, yeah, he's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> And in he, he, he looks like a demon whose flames seem to writhe and shift as he moves. Uh, the magical ritual that has unexpectedly reanimated Beric with fire magic is called the Fiery Kiss. And according to Thoros, it's a standard death rite that red priests always bestow upon the dead. Uh, presumably, he doesn't always resurrect people. <laughs> that would be crazy. But the fact that it worked that way for Thoros and Beric might indicate that its origins have something to do with animating beings with what we can loosely call fire magic, for lack of a better term.
2: Yeah, I mean, if the original fire mages and shadow binders were some sort of beings transformed by fire, at least part of the way, it's almost like the red priests, who tattoo their faces to look like flames and wear robes meant to look like flames, are dressing in remembrance of this deeper magical truth. Like, think about the Ironborn. They have the custom of drowning and resuscitating people, quote, you know, drowning people, which there is just a, C- a CPR, a resuscitation, but it could be imitating an older magical ritual, something that Patchface might have tapped into, where there's an actual magical resurrection via water magic, in his case. So, it could be that the Ironborn are just remembering that with a ritual that's kind of disconnected from the original thing. It would be kind of like um, a cult, of would be ice magic worshipers in the north dressing up like others or snow demons and uh, the wildlings known as the men of the frozen shore might already be doing something like that they're said to worship cold gods of snow and ice so rituals and symbols often get cut off from their original meaning to some extent for example how many people with a christmas tree in their house know very much about celtic druid rituals
1: very few maybe i'd bet our listenership is a bit more fertile ground for that but in general a couple a couple <laughs> not many a couple, yeah, a few of you guys for sure, a few. But you can see what I'm saying. Guys and gals out I've, I've, there, the point stands for sure. Yes. Yeah, as
2: time goes on and people forget why they do things, or they ascribe a slightly different meaning, you know. So maybe that's what all those fire masks are about.
1: It happens with words and language, especially. I mean, the the term to boot, for example, t- taking everything and to boot, you know, that's that used to that used to be basically be a synonym with the term good, like. Boot better and best used to be the term instead of good better. Yeah, I had no Isn't that idea. Weird? I, yeah, I did it's bizarre, not know. That. <laughs> right, it's strange. Yeah, English is a is a, its own you know rabbit hole of bizarre <laughs> origins and anachronisms that really don't make sense. But wow, that's a tangent.
2: Yep, just a little freebie. You know, think about uh, we're talking about a shy and heart of winter as opposites. So maybe we have ice beings. On one side, maybe we've got some fire beings. So maybe not all shadow binders, maybe just the originals, maybe just the occasional Melisandre, who knows? But there might be something going on with fire beings.
1: Yeah. And let's take this a step further. The shadow of the shadow is what we'll call this next part. Religions and cultures develop with their environment. This is kind of something we've just led up to. It's, they adapt to it. Take the North, for example, the, the Starks, winter is coming, right? There's no chance that's their motto if the Starks originated in the summer islands, right? Or especially if they still lived there. The islanders are not worried about freezing and starving. They're worried about pirates and foreign conquerors and other local troubles. Not, certainly not cold weather, though. Certainly not the others. The Starks in the north at large grew up around weirwood trees, skin changers, the wall, the shadow of the long night, and the others. So, of course, their beliefs, their religion, their culture is going to wrap itself around those
2: things. Yes. Likewise, Valerian culture and religion reflects their deep connection with dragons, fire and blood, and, uh, yeah, dragons, fire and blood, volcanoes, (laughs) (laughs) etc. Their culture was shaped in the shadow of massive volcanoes. Volcanoes are stressful, simmering cauldrons of heat and violence just as Valerian culture was.
1: Yeah, Ashai is in the literal shadow, and they are far older and farther east than Valyria, but there is much they have in common in terms of environment, and this is why we keep pressing these connections. These aren't just things they have in common. These are major, fundamental elements of their culture and history that overlap repeatedly so much that we think there's got to be connections.
2: Now, if Ashai had had some sort of doom of their own, some sort of fire magical disaster. It might explain why Ashai and Valyria's cultures have a lot in common. They seem to have been accessing the same source of magical power, fire and blood, and they may have been worried about similar apocalyptic possibilities. The connection
1: between Valyrians and dragons seems stronger than that of the and dragons, but the connection is there, and that may just be because Valyria was more recent. We know more about it, even though it's gone. It may only appear less strong in other words in ashai because it's more ancient and less understood.
2: Yeah, the parallels in magic are huge. We talked about blood magic and fire magic among others in particular. We have Marwin the Mage confirming that Valerian sorcery is rooted in fire and blood, while Melisandra Quaithe, Miriam Dor, etc., confirm the very similar uh, very similar things about ashai. We've talked about the connections between the Red Priest and ashai and the fact that the Azor High Myth comes from ashai is sacred to the Roloris, and parallels everything we know about Valyrian magic. The big
1: difference, though, there is a few, but the big obvious one is the shadow. There's no equivalent in Valyria that we know of. Shadow binding seems to be big in shy. We don't really hear it having a past in Valyria. It wasn't Valyria by the shadow, after all. And the thing about shadows is, as much as Melisandre likes them and, you know, is their advocate, (laughs) they tend to obscure and darken. So while we've shed a lot of light on this, and surely there will be more from George R.R. R. Martin. But in the end, very few of its secrets will be revealed to us. And we'll be left with mysteries, no doubt. That's okay. We like mysteries. Mysteries are fun. They're part of the story. And if you're in a Song of Ice and Fire fan, you're used to them by now. And used to the knowledge that you may not get an answer to all of these questions. But we might get the answers to some of them. And I love that the shadow is a perfect thematic styling. as a description of Eye's impact on the storyline. It describes what it does. We'll never go there... But Ashai casts a long shadow on the storyline and on Westeros. This is true with another, a number of other topics, but this time it's actually built into the name. The shadow's darkness is a reminder of the cost of the higher mysteries. Its ancientness, a warning that the price to being a savior can be the blood of countless innocent lives. And the fires? Well, Westeros has yet to see those. Just remember that only death can pay for life.
2: So, we're left with one big, huge, glaring question. Who built Ashai, and why? Who is this vanished civilization who was so advanced and built the largest metropolis in the world, the world's first metropolis, a 10,000-year-old city, at least, which still stands today? Additionally, and perhaps more importantly for the story, were they dragonlords? We didn't avoid this question because we don't have any guesses. (laughs) No, no. Rather, we're going to need a whole episode to explain it. A companion episode completing our joint work. Well, I wouldn't say completing, but continuing our joint work, which will be all about the great Empire of the Dawn.
1: Yeah, it's more like this chapter of our joint work. There you go. (laughs) I'm sure it'll be, it'll probably be interrupted by the TV season, but uh, we'll certainly come back and do some other episodes together in the future after the great empire of the dawn and we don't know exactly when that will be it might be next month but it might take us a bit longer as core of course this episode grew in the telling so we can never tell what's coming i've sort of learned not to make promises about <laughs> when we can do things i still fall into that trap all the time
2: well i but... i promise to do my best to uh to force you to crank this out as soon as possible
1: right on well that's good so Everybody can uh, cheer you on for that, and we'll cheer each other on as well. So thanks to everybody who helped make this episode possible. We got a lot of outside help this time. As much as we hammered on it between ourselves, there's always people uh, adding their voices and thoughts to it. Thanks to Jace Targaryen, as you mentioned earlier. Thanks to and Thanks to everyone else who suggested and asked questions about this topic in the past anyone who shed light on any of these things that helped us get it in our minds and think about it thanks to our voice helpers as well the amethyst koala and ashea again and we've got a lot of coming up before the tv season but i will wait to talk about a lot of that at another time or we've got A Q&A episode coming up later and we'll break down some of those things So now I wanna thank our Patreon supporters. We have our peers of the realm. First, Lord Cash Craig, Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers and the Black Pupil. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge is the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North and Warden of the North. The Warden of the South is currently unoccupied. Outside the realm, we have Rory the Rogue, Archer Extraordinaire, and King Beyond the Wall, who subjugated the vicious tribes of the Frozen Shore, as well as the Northern tribes who remain nameless. Our, sm- <laughs> our small council is made up of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight and Master of Whisperers, Grand Master Itai, who wears the jeweled collar of many medals. Lucifer means Lightbringer is our High Priest of the Church star of Star Wisdom. Sneaking in there, boy. <laughs> Love that title. Love the Lovecraft reference. That's one thing we didn't get to talk about. All the massive Lovecraft references that are all over the place in the East. But we'll talk about some of that with Greater Empire of the Dawn. That's fun stuff. Also, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever is our Master of Laws. Lord James Tuttle is our Master of Ships. We also have lords and ladies in their castles throughout the realm of history of Westeros. Lady Dyerl is of the Castle Naki, the alpha patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is the breaker of the second stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Lord Damien Sand, the Resilient, is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Spear swan Song. Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Geoffrey the Unflinching is Lord of Sand Lake. Lord Greybay of the Queen City. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen Devilhand is lord of Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the North's Hammer, harbinger of the Old Gods. And Lady Bram is light of Winter's Garden, beacon of the Northwest. We also have King's Justice, Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steelblade Fate. Our History of Westeros Lord Commander of the King's Guard is Lord Commander Shepard. Our History of Westeros Night's Watch is commanded by Lord Commander George the Golden and First Ranger Sir Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield. Well, a little bit more. As always, we like to save a few tidbits for after the credits. This episode was heavily scripted. We often mix scripting and open discussion, but because we had so much for this uh, material for this one. we we kept it kind of tight, but we got a little bit of a little bit shorter than we intended. we can we can do a little more talk here. So we got a couple of things we saved if we had time for them. So let's get into that. Now, as we we touched on briefly how George maybe intended to go to Ashai and then changed his mind. And one thing about that is the brand quote we brought up earlier and and he maybe, it makes more sense that he saw dragons beneath the shadow. Maybe he was seeing, because some of those scenes are in the future. Like he sees John losing cold. He sees his mother on a ship, which hasn't happened yet. So maybe he was seeing the future or seeing
2: a metaphorical thing of Danny. Oh, he sees, uh, he sees Gregor's uh, head decapitated with black blood and darkness yeah. flowing out. And that's a foreshadowing of something that doesn't happen till the end of book three, book four.
1: Yeah, so there's real room there for that's something to be that maybe George changed his mind on, or he, he didn't. Maybe it's just, it's just another reminder of the truth of dragons and Azor Ahai. It all runs through Ashai, And he even wanted to sh- introduce that concept in, in another point of view, someone that's kind of not really related to that part of the story in, a, in, a, in an obvious way, at least not at that part early of the Game of Thrones Connecting Brand to Danny at that point, it's like what <laughs> to me
2: it's it's kind of a parallel to Danny seeing the blue rose in the wall. It's it's uh it tells us that these stories are meant to be connected. I, I mean, of course, it's a book. They're not just gonna be separate stories, but those are the kind of things that tell you like dragons are somehow relevant for Brand to see, and Danny's for some reason the wall and the, the blue rose in the wall, which is probably John. The uh, Yeah. You know, that's relevant to her somehow.
1: Now, another interesting question is the other things that Quaithe could have meant by to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow, that sort of thing. And to go forward, you have to go back. Going back in history reminds us of, you know, going back. sounds like going back in history to find out the truth, going to back to Eshi to, to learn what came before, to see the bits of history that are coming to repeat themselves.
2: Yeah, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what else back could mean.
1: Yeah, right. Like I, I don't get it either. To go north, south, you must go to go north, you must go south. That kind of makes sense. She's going to go to maybe land south of Westeros and then go north towards the wall. That that kind of you can see see how that that's maybe needs less explanation. I've seen people talk about under the shadow meaning the metaphorical like you need to go. You're gonna things are going to have to get dark before you're going to make them light. Like you're going to have to. I can, and there's a lot of darkness around Danny's arc, potentially causing destruction with her dragons sure. and with these Ralloris and all that. So that that fits. But there's also, you know, some people have said that maybe that just, it's like she's passing under Balerion's shadow. Drogon. or Sorry, Drogon's shadow, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, which I can see that being true, too. And knowing George, it doesn't have to meet just one of those things. Here's, a,
2: here's an interesting tidbit for you. Um, in a couple of those scenes where Drogon's wings come in between Danny and the sun, one of the sentences says, the world darkened. So you think mm. about that Carthene legend of dragons hatching from the moon, which I say cause a long night, and you can see there's consistently dragons blocking the sun. It happens with the two dragons when they're out on the, on the water in the three boats that are named after, you know, B- Balerion and Meraxes. Rhaegol yeah. and Viserion are sort of tussling, and it says as soon as one comes between the sun and the other, they dive. Mm. So it's, it's almost like they're making an eclipse. It actually happens in a bunch of dragon fights. In Caraxes and Vhagar above the god's eye, it happens again. Dragon That's eclipse, cool. and then they attack Nice. Yep. Good catch there. So there's also the we talked
1: about multiple possibilities for the origin of dragons besides Ashai. Now Barth relates uh, a bit that we talked about in the Septon Barth episode, which is that he one of his theories is that the Valyrians learned how to make dragons by taking fireworms and combining them with wyverns. And we know the dragon. We know the Valyrians did all sorts of species slice splicing. So this is. You know, it sounds bizarre and crackpot, but hey, it's in there. It's in the text explicitly. So there's no quibbling with it as a possibility for sounding too outlandish. So the possibility is this. It doesn't have to be the Valyrians that invented that recipe. Maybe they rediscovered it. Maybe some, maybe the Ashae or somebody discovered how to make dragons in the long distant past, and the Valyrians rediscovered that. So it's not wrong to say that dragons were born in the Fourteen Flames, it's just a little off. It's more like saying they were reborn. They were recreated there, but they didn't start there the first time. Especially If they're an engineered species, then
2: they could have been invented twice. And we've already seen a parallel for that with a, the Targaryen dragons died out for a hundred some years. And then Danny discovers the blood magic ritual needed by accident or by using the force or whatever in order <laughs> to hatch dragons and they return to the world. So maybe they died off in the doom. Yeah. I mean not the doom, I'm sorry, the long night. Maybe they died off in the long night and it wasn't until the Valerians rediscovered sorcery. Um if I could give another quick hat tip to a forum buddy, there's a guy named Mithras floating around and he has a theory about the glass candles. Being uh, able to store knowledge as well, so like maybe mm. dead ghosts of old Valerians can maybe store knowledge in candles that then maybe other people could access later. So maybe the Valerians used candles to see the past or mm. see hidden knowledge, and there, there way there wasn't like literally people from a shy that came to Valeria and taught them. Maybe they just rediscovered the knowledge.
1: That's not yeah. unlike Nora Knowledge being stored in the werewood network, I suppose. No, it's so a, it's a it's direct equivalent, yeah.
2: Magical parallel.
1: Now, one last bit. Um, the effect of Ashi to the farther east. I'm just curious about this. This is couldn't possibly impact the story. But are there more ralore worshippers farther east, like to the east of Ashai, we know west of Ashai. yeah they're all over the place R'hllor is mega popular but to the east farther what else is over there I don't know it's it's kind of interesting to think about I can't imagine George is going to really want to he's already taken us f- way farther east than the story seems to demand but hey
2: that doesn't slake like my curiosity <laughs> have you uh have you read Wheel of Time you have right yeah yeah I have yeah okay so you've read the last three books that uh, Sanderson finished up right Yes. So, did spoiler you? Spoiler like, alert! If we're going there, yeah, yeah, no, definitely spoiler alert. Wheel of Time. Uh, so, did you like at the end how like he brought in an entire army of male sorcerers from a continent that's off the map that we've never even that we've only heard of? Like, yeah, that would be great. In the War of the Dawn, we're gonna get like the people from. Yeah, east of the gray waste or whatever That's invading. That's
1: true. That's a potential parallel. It's not supposed to be anything to the west of Westeros, but hey, yeah, they could just appear. <laughs> I,
2: I doubt it. I doubt yeah, it.
1: Yeah, I but. do too. I doubt that. But it's it's open as a possibility. And more like the possibility is it won't touch on this. It won't be involved in the story like it was in Wheel of Time, but that, you know, we still get to think about the possibility that there's some continent way over there, that the planet is probably round. So That's it,
2: actually, at you some know, point it wraps around on that side. This is a great point of how George can do huge world building with just a little bit of work just by naming it the Saffron Straits. It yeah. implies that there's trade that goes through those straits, which tells you there's stuff going that way. And those people come to a shy sometimes. So like yeah. he did all of that with two words on a map. That's very cool. Yeah. very cool. Good job, George, for
1: lots of information packed into tight spaces. Okay, so I think what we might have shown, in addition to all these things about Ashai and Azor Ahai and dragons and Daenerys, is I think we showed that maybe there's more in the World of Ice and Fire book than you guys might have suspected. That's right. Some people have Overlooked a love-hate it. relationship with the book or maybe haven't delved into it as deep as they might have. So I hope maybe we we gave you more reason to think of the book as awesome. And I'm going to give you one last reason why it's important to have the book. There's an image of Ashai in there. It's drawn, and George is really, really strict about what art went in that book. So you know it's a pretty good rendition. He approved it specifically. It's not like the fan art and all these things you see all over the internet. The art in, a song, in The World of Ice and Fire is tight. So I highly recommend it. You can get the book through our website, historyofwesteros.com. There's numerous shopping links on the right. Just follow the links. It's very straightforward. But if you don't have the time for that, if you don't want to sit down and read it, you have another option. Also to the right on historyofwestrosa.com, there are many very apparent links to audible.com where you can get a free trial, sign up 30 days, no commitment. You can get one free book download that you get to keep, even if you don't keep the subscription. Why not make that the world of ice and fire? Listen to it on your way to work while you're doing chores. Or hey, Pick up the, the books and do a reread. That's the other thing I think we, we do that a lot of times in these episodes. We reveal what we missed, what you missed, what we all missed. The audio books are a good way to reread without committing quite as much time and energy to it because you can do it while doing other things. So pick up Game of Thrones on audio, World of Ice and Fire on audio, or if you want to go all the way back to the beginning and reread them, heck, that's what I love to do. Anytime I read a new book... I consider. Wouldn't I rather reread A Song of Ice and Fire again? It's always a debate <laughs> I have with myself. Shouldn't I just read A Song of Ice and Fire again? Wouldn't that be more fun? Well, and a...
2: Go if, ahead. I, if if I may, I was just going to say that uh, you know some people complain about Roy Dotrice reading like Sansa's lines or whatever. Yeah, I, I for I get one, that. I'm fine with it because to me it's just like uh, the Princess Bride, where the, the grandfather reads the whole story. But <laughs> I, I will say that uh, the old maester that narrates A Song of Ice and Fire must be the role that he's born to play. If yeah, anything.
1: yeah, you can't. There's no complaining about his little girl voices in the World of Ice and Fire because he's not asked to do that. You know, that's that's something that's he did. It's you know they asked him to do these voices. It was like, why? Why did you ask an? AD no, he's man a perfect old maester. Little girl voices. These, yeah, he, he's a great that. You're right. The Maester voice, it's hard to do better than that. It's dead personally. on. <laughs> so anyway, folks, I think that's it for today. Thanks again to LML. Check out the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast when you get the chance as soon as possible, Woo. especially if you're interested in these—the these, going deeper into some of these subtopics that are related to Eschat. And we'll be back soon. As I said, it's going to be a very busy time before season six for us and during and heck, after as well. So stick with us and visit historyofwesteros.com for more updates. And until next
2: time, Valar re